science fiction had not been done quite that way. A man had not yet gone to the moon. They didn't land on the moon until after we were canceled, three years later. My own father, the night Star Trek came on the air, went around and apologized to all the neighbors, you know. <laughs> I know the boy is up to something crazy, but he'll come back and do a good American show. <laughs> we were all learning a lesson, even though we were being entertained. So, that's what writing is really about, whether it's a Star Trek or, or a Western or, or anything else. So, intertwine it into the story, but that really is what writing is about, and that's that's the difference between uh, bad and good writing. That's the difference between uh, uh, classics and, uh, and and stuff you throw away. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast. Give me that Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 8 of Gimme That Star Trek. This month we're trying something different. Instead of having just the one guest to cover a, a certain topic, I'll be having many guests all across the episode. But mostly I'll be talking your ear off because the attempt is to review every episode of the original series in order. So this is, uh, I'll be honest here, I'm recycling some of the material that I wrote for Cisco's blog of Geekery some 10 years ago when I reviewed the series, although I'll be updating my comments, and I'll be inserting various other Trekkies' favorite episode reviews into uh, the narrative, along with, you know, the usual clips. So bear with me, I don't know how long this will take, but if I know how insane I am, I'm going to try to do the same with all seven seasons of Next Generation next year, and then Deep Space Nine anyway. We'll, we'll see if this is at all possible. I'll be recording this over a number of days, so it's very possible that the sound quality will change. And on that caveat, let us begin. I was in a cage, a cell, in some kind of a zoo. I must still be there. The very first episode was The Cage. Why we like it, it's the start of it all. Vina as an Orion slave girl, and all things considered a very good script. Why we don't? Well, this isn't the cast we know and love, except for Spock, and he's acting strangely. It's really a what-if kind of episode, isn't it? As in, what if this had been the series, actually? Spock would have no doubt evolved as he did, but the rest of the cast is different enough. Captain Pike is a good, strong character, but I can't see him becoming the icon that Kirk became. William Shatner's performance is no doubt the culprit here, not that Mr. Hunter is bad at all. As for the others, number one is a little too much like Spock in function, and Dr. Boyce isn't as engaging as McCoy, though he serves that same function. I'd say it's because he's a much older man and works as a father figure more than a friend. That's a different dynamic, but the rest of the cast doesn't really resonate with me. That's all in hindsight, isn't it? They never got the chance. Overall, the pilot is as strong as its reputation, really. It's a good classic science fiction story with kind of creepy aliens and a good guest star in Vina. There's a lot of money on the screen, what with all the illusions that are created, and that's always nice. The show will suffer from a lack of this in the third season, 
so it's appreciated here. Really, the only reason I don't care as much as I should is because it feels so apart from the rest of the series. The lesson I learned? Never judge a book by its cover or a series by its pilot. Rewatchability rating is high, if only because it airs less often than the others and is full of little differences the geek in me likes. The second episode, Where No Man Has Gone Before. The real start of the iconic SF series. It's a strong script and some excellent guest stars, including that guy from 2001. No McCoy yet, boop, and some pretty obvious stuntmen doing the fighting. Let's get into it. This is the one where TOS really starts for most of us, with the appearance of most of the series regulars. McCoy is really missing here, and Dr. Mark Piper being in the voice mold is kind of dull. Even Sulu and Uhura have more personality at this point. Spock is still a little odd, only a little. A lot of work has already been done on this character. Kirk is already set on the right course, a fist-fighting hero with a, a love of Shakespeare and the ladies. And that's thanks to Mitchell, it seems, and I like to think of the lab assistant as being a young Carol Marcus. I've never liked the galactic barrier, now, because one, it doesn't really exist you know, in the universe. And two, it looks like you could fly over or under it. But as a plot device, to turn a crew member or two into gods, well, I guess it's fine. The whole ESP angle is really strange now, as it's more supernatural than sci-fi to today's audiences. But we've had enough telepaths to buy the idea. Great guest stars, too. Dr. Denner uh, being the first counselor ever seen in Star Trek, and still the one I find most competent and watchable. Sorry, TNG fans. Psychiatry, Captain. My assignment is to study crew reaction in emergency conditions. Gary Mitchell is the real star, though. Both friend and villain to Kirk. The familiar camaraderie on the bridge would have been interesting to explore more. And when he gets his powers, he's quite effective and creepy. The effects are all simple, but effective, too, with the stunt work being a bit obvious. Uh, which will happen often, I must say. The message of power corrupting, etc. is old hat, of course, which does make this dumbed down compared to the cage. But it's still smarter than a lot of television and film SF. Well acted, nice action, good ideas. Again, rewatchability on this is high. There are enough differences with the actual series to make it interesting for Trekkies, but beyond that, the performances are quite good. The crew members that die would have been actually interesting to stick with. Episode 3, The Man Trap. Please go back while you still can. Uh, though silly, the monster is memorable, uh, as is its mode of killing. Killing by taking the salt out of someone is ludicrous. A bad example of Trek to show first, and yet that's what NBC did. So I wanted to, I wanted to review the pilots first, and the rest according to air dates. Because Man Trap was actually the first Star Trek episode ever shown. Where No Man would air third, and The Cage would be later turned into The Menagerie. We'll get to that. So this was the world's first look. It's a wonder it stayed on the air after that. I mean, a simple monster story without the message SF Star Trek would do best is what this is. Never mind that the monster, though memorable, was biologically unsound. It was never established whether it was truly sentient or not, and yet it had to be to mimic real people... We're much too aware of what's going on right from the start, so there's no mystery as the crew just, you know, has to play catch-up with the audience. At the end, the monster is simply killed, which isn't very Star Trek-like in hindsight. And for all that, we already have the Kirk, Spock, McCoy trio working well together, and the budget is fairly high. Good creature design, expansive planet sets, despite the shaking styrofoam rocks. We also have the first of Sulu's many varied hobbies, if you don't count astrophysics. And both he and Yeoman Rand are likable characters here. May the great bird of the galaxy bless your planet. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, Beauregard. 
How are you today, darling? Her name's Gertrude. No, it's a he plant. A girl can tell. Why do people have to call inanimate objects she? Like, um, she's a fast ship. He is not an inanimate object. He's so animate, he makes me nervous. In fact, I keep expecting one of these plants of yours to uh, grab me. I'm often surprised that I like Rand given my memories of her. I, I wonder what the series would have been like if she'd been able to stay. The lesson to learn here, take out the tiny bit of salt we have in our bodies and we die. So don't cry and sweat too much. When I mentioned this to my friend Melanie, she said she knew I was being sarcastic, but she was sure it could kill any North American since it's the number one element of our diet. So I rate the rewatchability of this episode at medium. Some good character bits, but the plot itself is pretty much on autopilot. Next was Charlie X. Why we like it? It's got a groovy musical number. Why we don't? Charlie's meant to be annoying, but knowing that doesn't make him any easier to like. This episode. I find a lot of small things to like, but I take issue, once again, with the plot. I like, for example, that... We see how the crew relaxes, 3D chess, cards, and Uhura's beautiful improvised singing, all nice elements. We also see hand-to-hand combat training, and this helps create a realistic life aboard the ship. Janice Rand is again a strong character with attitude and charm. Charlie falls for her much too easily, but both she and Kirk are just, you know, terrible at explaining the facts of life to him. 60s TV rears its ugly head uh, as those scenes veer into sitcom territory. Would Kirk really be so squeamish? But Janice is still a useful part of the crew. I'm not enamored of his acting or anything, but the casting for Charlie is interesting. He's got a strangely shaped head that helps sell the mental powers, big cranium and all that. But the plot, uh, first of all, it covers a scene too similar to the pilot, which would air next, where no man has gone before. More variety, please. And and there's the matter of how the Thasians gave Charlie powers, but can't take them away. Seems pretty convenient. Again, the crew is playing catch-up with the audience, with no mystery whatsoever for us, and the regulars not spotting the obvious for the longest time. Spock isn't even investigating the silent moment in the rec room. I mean, there are some creepy moments of note, like the faceless woman, but Charlie's annoying nature is just that, annoying. And though I think we're supposed to feel sorry for him at the end, I'm just glad he's gone. And for fans out there, this is the shirtless Kirk episode. You know who you are. My takeaway, well, before you improvise a humiliating song about a sensitive teen, make sure he can't turn you into a Scottish setter or something. Rewatchability again at medium. For all its faults, there are still some solid moments here, and I've always loved Uhura's singing interludes. Oh, Charlie's our new darling, our darling, our darling. Charlie's our new darling We know not what he'll do And here with our first alternate review, our good friend, Corey Drew. So, revoke my nerd cred if you must. But until the other day, I had only seen this classic episode, Charlie X, once in its entirety, when I was nine. It scared the plasma right out of my warp nacelles. I don't know if it was Charlie's eyes rolling back into his head, or Spock being forced to recite William Blake, or faces being stolen. It was just way too traumatic for my little brain. This is an early episode of the series, before the tropes began to calcify, and before they jettisoned some of the charming niceties that added verisimilitude to the series. Like Uhura interrupting Kirk to get a document signed, or Spock playing his lyre and smirking. Not quite emotion, but emotion adjacent. Kirk sipping a beverage while in conference, 
All these small moments add up to more than the sum of their parts. They paint the life of the people on the Enterprise. It being early days, some directorial and dialogue stylization seems to be things they later abandon as well, perhaps to simplify a complicated show for a wider audience. The aforementioned terrifying face ceiling scene, for instance, plays like an actual nightmare. Or the moment where Kirk absolutely channels Humphrey Bogart from the Maltese Falcon and barks, there's a million things you can have, Charlie, and a million things you can't. It would have been nice to empathize with Charlie a little bit initially. He shows up and is weird and in under one minute psychically manipulates people. So he's clearly corrupt. You were given just no time to like this kid. Midway through the story, he becomes a little sympathetic as Kirk is parenting him. Charlie cries that everything he does is wrong. He expresses confusion and sadness and frustration in a pitch-perfect dialectical with Kirk about the discomforts of adolescence. The end, though. That's the real power of this episode. The Thatians are able to appear on the bridge looking like Oz the Great and Powerful, and then the real stakes of the story are revealed. Charlie lived his whole life with nothing but specters for company, and simply wants human companionship. Due to his lust, his fear, his ignorance, he has lost that chance. Kirk, despite Charlie's murder spree, has sympathy, vainly pleads his case to the Thatians, but no child can have the power of a god and live peaceably among mortals. And with that, Charlie is gone. And our intrepid crew has absolutely lost, and they know it. Kirk grimly returns everyone, some weeping, to their posts. McCoy and Rand step solemnly into the lift. The camera pulls up and back, showing the bridge of the Enterprise from an uncomfortably observational angle, giving you the feeling that you had peered into their snow globe of a world. Overall, I'd say this is an excellent episode of the series. The end entirely blew me away in its darkness. I'm reminded that the crew of the Enterprise frequently does not win. And although the Thatians reset the status quo, you know things will never be the same for them again. Moving on to episode 5, a classic, The Naked Time. Why we like it? The bare-chested swashbuckler Sulu is a hoot. Spock's battle with his human side is strong stuff. Why we don't? Well, the time warp at the end feels like it's from another episode, and Riley may or may not be your cup of tea. One more time! I'll take you home again, Kathleen! Please, not again. This episode has lots of good moments, but I do wonder if it was too early to air it. Yes, it does a good job of developing the characters, some of them, but fourth on the schedule is too early for the Spock stuff, coming before the revelation of his human half in The Enemy Within. The choice of giving stuff to do to Chapel, but not McCoy, Riley, but not Scott or Uhura, is all very debatable. I wasn't all that interested in Kirk's longing looks at Rand either. The real stars are Spock and Sulu. Sulu provides comic relief, impressively swinging that sword around bare-chested. It's one of the best-remembered things about Sulu. As for Spock, that's where the drama lies. Spock's pain at never having told his mother he loved her is quite powerful. A strong moment with minimal direction. The acting speaks for itself. I am in control of my emotions. Control of my emotions. The plot device to force this exploration of various characters is on the ridiculous side, alcoholic water or whatever, but the infections are well staged with good sound design. I'm more puzzled by the time warp ending, which seems tagged on only for Roddenberry to justify future trips into history, and thus the use of pre-existing sets and costumes. Well, it was never quite done that way after this, so what's the point? I'd call it a stain on an otherwise good episode. A friend of the blog, codenamed The Mutt, 
uh, said the highlight of this episode for for him was I'll protect you, fair lady. Sorry, neither. And he wonders how did that one slip standards and practices. Rewatchability is high. Despite its problems, the good moments are always watchable, a must for any fan of Spock or Sulu. Episode 6, The Enemy Within. It's the kind of metaphysical SF Star Trek does well, exploring the human condition. It's a bit over the top, isn't it? I want to go back. Please! I want to live! Hey, it's our first transporter malfunction. Unfortunately, it's not our last. This time, Kirk is split into two halves, one essentially good, the other evil, or so they would have us believe. It rather looks like he was split into instinct and reason, which corresponds better uh, with on-screen events. But despite the scientific silliness of the premise and the rather theatrical presentation as far as lighting, camera angles, and over-the-top acting of the evil scenes, it is an enjoyable episode. Evil Kirk is caught much earlier than we would have thought, etc., making it not so predictable. Sulu keeps his away team alive smartly and courageously on the frozen planet. The secondary characters uh, are still being developed in this era before the stars hijacked all the attention. You know, Rand gets good copy too. The episode makes an interesting point that our dark side, or animal instinct, is a positive influence on our lives. And Spock telling us it's always like that for him is good character development too. And for all that, I feel it's a bit one note, probably because of the over-the-top performances. The lesson to be learned here, you can always tell someone is evil by the eyeliner and flashlight lighting. And so I set rewatchability rating at medium. Always fun, but rewatching it for this, I wasn't as engaged as I thought I would be. Let's take a look at another one, Mud's Women. Why we like it? Probably for the same reasons the boys of the Enterprise do. Why we don't? Sexist 60s attitudes rear their ugly heads. Now, on the one hand, I quite appreciate this as one of the classics, but can't for the life of me understand why Harry Mudd is supposed to be a popular character. He's over the top, almost anachronistic in dress and style, and pretty annoying. We've only been trained to think of him as a lovable rogue when he's anything but lovable. The character of Eve is, at least, well-realized. A smart and independent woman, despite her apparent need to get a husband no matter what. The other ladies are pretty enough to look at as well, with Magda having been a Playboy playmate and everything. Of course, the whole idea of the Venus drug and that Eve can recreate its effects by thinking sexy is laughable and only highlights the fact that these were beautiful women to start with. I wonder if the one that seems scarred could have done the same, just with positive thinking. So the message is a little hokey, but that's nothing compared to the way the male members of the crew are treated. They make complete fools of themselves, and Kirk's insistence that these girls are having an inexplicable effect on the crew are also ridiculous. The episode is only really saved by strong acting from some of the guest stars, and no, not mud. Interesting is the mention of dilithium crystals and the way of life of the miners really showing Star Trek's Western origins. The lesson? Now, being sexy is a state of mind. It acts as a natural makeup and hair conditioner. So rewatchability is only medium, for the eye candy, mostly. It's otherwise a bit repetitive, and my feelings about Harry Mudd mirror Kirk's. Oh, you beautiful galaxy. Oh, that heavenly universe. Episode 8, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Why we like it? Well, the impressive androids and the great split screen work. Why we don't? Those pink and purple sets. I mean, come on. Though I question the, the wisdom of having a chapel-heavy episode when she's not as regular as most of the other secondary characters, an episode noteworthy for the absence of Dr. McCoy, no less, 
there are a lot of things to like in this one. One of these is the direction, which has interesting camera angles and excellent split-screen effects. The scenes with Android Kirk at the dinner table are particularly good, and not only the conversation between Kirk's, but also the creepy one between the android and Christine. The androids are also impressive. Andrea is one of the prettiest Kirk girls, I mean, if James Bond can have them, uh, from the series, and Ruck has a most powerful presence, both in size and strength. Ted Lurch Cassidy really is throwing William Shatner around like a rag doll. Now, Robert Block is a recognizable name in horror literature, and it's great that they use such people in writing the series, far too infrequently seen uh, in later days. Uh, though the final motivations of Corby and the other androids isn't always clear. All of a sudden, Andrea has emotions, and Kirby starts talking like a computer. The double suicide is too quickly done to have the impact it should as well. I do like the whole backstory of the old ones and how we arrived at the old Star Trek message that machines shouldn't replace human beings. The sets are large, but are really just, aside from the stock footage of the Arctic, foam creations, atrociously lit, colored in pink and purple tones, the kind of 60s design ethic that takes me right out of the story. The stalactite club wielded by Kirk also has an unfortunate shape, if you know what I mean. Uh, one real letdown of the episode, however, is the use of Spock. I'm not sure Kirk's little half-breed phrase really should have influenced the android Kirk, and then I'm, I'm not sure Spock would have reacted exactly as he did. But that all hardly matters, because Spock doesn't save the day at the end anyway. Everything wraps up before he gets there, and the whole incident, while showing the friendship between the two men, comes off as padding. If there's a lesson to be learned here is that Christine Chapel really has a thing for logical men. I said the rewatchability at medium... Some great scenes, but the plot isn't without its leaks. Of course, that can be said of many early episodes. For a second opinion, here's Mike Peacock from Justice's First Dawn. What are little girls made of? Directed by James Goldstone and written by Robert Block. Long story short for the episode, Nurse Chapel has an interesting adventure with James T. Kirk on a planet XO3 looking up the long-lost Dr. Roger Corby, who has been missing from uh, Federation Records for five years. Turns out he's been on this ice planet. He has some interesting friends, namely Andrea, Ruck, and Brown, who uh, are revealed to be androids. So we then are given a mystery of like, wait, why are these androids showing up? Why are they so lifelike? And what's this mystery about Roger Corby? Why haven't we heard from him in so many years? Now, the reasons why I enjoy this episode are many and varied. I mean, cinematography-wise, this is probably one of the more interesting episodes. Like, there are many sequences, like especially with the android replication machine, which remind me almost a lot of like later Italian giallo work by Dario Argento. There's just really interesting use of colors and lighting in this episode. I really appreciate it. But this episode also can reflect something that I appreciate in some older, uh, especially original series episodes, where, yes, Star Trek is an optimistic series. That's why I've actually grown <laughs> in my older years to really appreciate it. But this episode has a bit of a horror tinge to it. And I think the original series really blended optimistic sci-fi with horror elements effectively, probably more so than any of the other Star Trek featured films or even series. And it shouldn't come as any surprise because obviously I did mention it was written by Robert Block, who many people would best know as the actual creator of Psycho. 
But he's also had a varied history with pulp horror and even science fiction, so it would make sense that he would be able to navigate the two worlds and blend them together in this episode. Now, as for the actual participants, uh, Roger Corby, played by Michael Strong, and he gives such a interesting performance in the role of Roger Corby. I mean, he's very scientific, you know, and you'd almost expect it to be like a Reed Richards persona at that point, but he has like this man edge and just his looks and his delivery sometimes. It's not over-the-top insane, but you can definitely tell that something's not right about Roger Corby. And Ted Cassidy as Ruck. Now, I will admit, no sliding Ted Cassidy. I love his work, both on Adam's Family and for various animation voice roles. But still, I prefer actually the novelization approach that they had for this adaptation. I like that depiction of Ruck a bit more. I mean, and here is basically just ginormous Ted Cassidy and sort of like this weird facial makeup scheme. And <laughs> the best way I could describe it is sort of like a flowing gown with like a Nightwing collar. But in the actual book adaptation, they describe him a bit more as like an ape-like creature, just almost like a shaved ape, which is a bit more of a disturbing visual, but still very effective for its horror-ish approach. And Shirley Jackson as Andrea, well, to put it mildly, as the irredeemable shag would say it, she's hot. There's no denying it. She is very attractive to look at in this episode. Now, she plays the very, like, instantly programmable android, but she also has that layer of confusion that's revealed more throughout the episode because, hey, she's dealing with Captain Kirk. Obviously, he's able to sex up a machine like there's no tomorrow. But still, this is not saying that this is a cheesy Captain Kirk, William Shatner episode. In fact, this is still first season where William Shatner is very measured in his approach to Captain James T. Kirk. It's not over the top, but you can still buy that he has the smooth charm to really sort of put the moves even on a robotic woman. But like I said, Shirley Jackson, she plays the role perfectly, and oh, that outfit. That outfit, that figure, that face. Ooh, yeah, I can imagine a lot of young men watching this episode back in its original airing going, well, I'm a man now after seeing this episode. (laughs) There's also something about this episode, too, that brings to mind a lot of my other genre fascinations. Like, it takes place on a planet XO3 where they don't take advantage of the ice settings of the planet because it's supposed to be this, I think they said it was like a thousand degrees below zero planet. But a lot of it takes place in its thermally controlled caves that Dr. Roger Corby and the old ones that built Ruck were originally constructed of. So there's the ice planet element, which kind of ties in a bit to my fandom for The Thing. I mean, I would say I probably favor more John Carpenter's The Thing, the original Howard Hawks thing. But still, it has that Arctic frozen environment, which works well for like a pseudo-horror setting. Plus, it also has the questioning of androids and their ability to possibly even emulate human feelings, which figures strongly in Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and also later uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, which is also another personal favorite of mine. But this episode just has a lot of really great, like I said, almost horror, but also speculative science fiction with machine logic, and whether are they really that much more perfect than humanity. And yes, this episode does have some awesome Kirk foo. It has a traditional Kirk role 
as he's avoiding a blaster, or I'm sorry, a phaser shot. I'm crossing the streams, people. But <laughs> this episode also has given us, and I actually thank one of my old friends, April, for this. It gave us the Star Trek meme of Kirk. In a sequence where he's fleeing pursuit from Rock, he decides to defend himself by tearing a stalactite, yes, that's from the ceiling, off of his hands to use as a weapon against Rock, the gigantic android. Let's just say, people, that that stalactite is a rather um, suggestive in appearance. And one other fun note about the episode. This is actually a very limited uh, cast episode. I mean, you do get an appearance from Uhura, and Mr. Spock, while he doesn't figure heavily in the episode, is an integral part to it. But that's really all you get for the crew. Just Kirk, Spock, Uhura. Everybody else, just MIA. You don't even have Scotty at the transporter console. And Chapel, that's all you get. But still, even with that, it does not feel any less of a Star Trek episode. It does all the things that a Star Trek episode needs to do. It has fast, punctuated action, a very intriguing plot, very interesting settings, and also uh, just a sense of fun, wonder, even a bit of suspense and horror. But still, a really enjoyable ride. And also, I will say... Yes, while well, a lot of my my comments about Andrea have been rather sexist, but there's something for the ladies, too. I mean, when Captain Kirk undergoes the android replication process, let's just say that you don't really have that much of an imagination left to you to see uh, William Shatner fully exposed. You only just have the one bar separating you from viewing uh, little James T. Kirk at that point. Up next is Miri. We like it because Miri's a sweet character. We don't like it so much because... Bonk, bonk on the head. Bonk, bonk. Bonk, bonk. Bonk, bonk. Kids in Star Trek, you really don't mix. Now, I had fonder memories of this episode, I think, but watching it again has been torturous in spots. I knew I was going to cringe at all the kid-speak, bonk, bonk, chief among the expressions used, but I found almost everything about them irritating. The silly games, the masks, the rebellious attitudes, the Lord of the Flies flashbacks. The story is replete with TOS cliches, or things that would become cliches, like Kirk's amazing rippable shirt, his power hug to Miri, not unlike the one he gave himself in The Enemy Within, the planet that's just like Earth, incredibly so in this case, with the notable differences that this Earth has no cloud cover and that some countries are differently colored like on a map, uh, which is the case for Canada and India? What's going on there? And the idea that Kirk probably shouldn't have any children. Uh, Miri's a likable character and exudes a lot of charm, but her relationship with Kirk gets a little creepy at times. She's naturally jealous of his relationship with Yeoman Rand, but that just highlights a relationship that's difficult to understand. This isn't the first time words have been exchanged between the two grups uh, speaking to a certain desire between them, but nothing is ever done about it, and it's hard to believe there wouldn't be a lot of awkwardness at the end of each of these episodes. So, ultimately, the rewatchability on this is low. Between extremely annoying antagonists and loads of unbelievable and boring story elements, I can't possibly sit through this one again anytime soon. But I think Beatlemania's Tim Wallace has a different opinion. One of my favorite Star Trek episodes is from Season 1, Episode 8, titled Miri. It has the distinction of being one of only a handful of original Star Trek episodes that were banned in the UK for being too intense and having objectionable content. Which is kind of funny. When you think about it, the story really boils down to a post-apocalyptic Peter Pan tale. Responding to a distress call, the crew of the Enterprise arrive on a planet almost identical to a 1960s Vietnam-era Earth, 
only to find that all of the adults are dead, killed off by a fatal disease that onsets at puberty, leaving behind a band of raggedy children led by the awesome, awesome character actor Michael J. Pollard. Pollard and Kim Darby, as the title character Miri, arguably the two oldest children in the group, lead the other children, or lost boys, as they try to hide or fight the adult members of the Enterprise crew, who they refer to as grumps, and chant bonk bonk on the head. It's a crazy story, but it's so much fun, and a large part of that, for me at least, is Michael J. Pollard. He's a character actor. You've seen him before. You'd know him when you saw his face. He's sort of elfish, with twitchy expressions, and a voice kind of like that. And uh, he was in the movie Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, and uh, guest starred all over television, including Mr. Mix's Pedelec on The Adventures of Superboy. Sorry for the terrible impression, but you get the idea. Michael J. Pollard really is the reason that Miri is one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. Dagger of the Mind. It's the first Vulcan mind melt, and it's got a nice mood going throughout. Let's look at it more closely. The show starts with an exciting intruder alert. The bridge is abuzz with activity, and it all seems very professional. And then Van Gelder walks onto the bridge and bonks a security guard on the head. Boop! Uh, talk about an incompetent security force. Just before this, we had a transporter guy who gets sent to the library to bone up on penal colony protocols. It's not a great showing for the crew. The regulars are in good form, though. This episode is best known for showing the first Vulcan mind meld in a scene that offers some vivid imagery of what the procedure is like. Its euphoric effects might be why those Vulcans were addicted to it on Enterprise. Spock gets to use a nerve pinch, tells us that illogic breeds war, and even uses a little of his superhuman strength. Morgan Woodward steals the show as Van Gelder, however, uh, contributing a great deal to the creepy atmosphere supported throughout the show. I'm a grown man and not at all squeamish, so I was surprised I found it hard to watch his throes of agony. This whole episode is creepy and extreme, from the idea that you could be brainwashed to love someone, to Spock hovering over Van Gelder during the, me the meld, not to mention Lethe, even if her name is a bit too on the nose, uh, and the other lovey-dovey inmates. Oh, a penal colony engineer gets electrocuted as well. It's creepy with a capital C. And that's where it succeeds mostly, even though the plot line is fine. I like that Dr. Noel gets a bit of action at the end, though I dislike the character's annoying attitude before then. She's clearly been put into Janice Rand's role, and we'll only see Janice a couple more times before she's whisked off the show. It's true that revolving love interests work better for Kirk, and even the events here show that he can't go too far with one of his crew. The one thing I found lacking is the ending. Dr. Adams befalls a somewhat predictable ironic fate, and the loneliness coda is okay, but, you know, feels tacked on. The episode wasn't really about that, was it? And they just don't say how Kirk and Van Gelder were cured of the neural neutralizer's conditioning. I mentioned they went back into the machine, but, you know, it kind of nags me nonetheless. What I learned is that office romances are never a good idea. This one is highly rewatchable. Some of the best horror Star Trek has ever come up with, and a great performance from Woodward. It's also good for Vulcan fans. Open your mind. We move together. Our minds sharing the same thoughts. The Corbomite Maneuver. We like it because the main characters are at their strongest. It's a great picture of shipboard life, and Balok is kind of funky. Is there any reason not to like it? If I have to commit to something, I'll say the uneven direction. 
Now, this comes late in the airing schedule, but it was the first episode shot after the two pilots. The only reason I can see for that is that it starts with Spock in the captain's chair. Ooh, it's confusing. Uh, it's too bad, too, because this is a very strong story, and it's kind of weird having Kirk react as if for the first time to having a female yeoman. What impresses me most is that all the elements are already in place. Spock and McCoy are well-drawn already and both act as two sides of Kirk's mind. Spock offers a logic of chess, and McCoy puts the morale of the crew in Kirk's thoughts. They are very much angels on his shoulders here, and it works beautifully. It also creates a real friendship between Kirk and both men. Kirk isn't just a function of those two, however, he's a strong captain in his own right, refusing to go through a Kobayashi Maru scenario. This early in the series, the Enterprise is large and busy, which is great to see. There's a real commitment to showing shipboard life, not just the adventures. We have crew morale, medical exams, promotions, a real sense that the ship is inhabited. The ideals of our Federation, which is not yet named that, are displayed as well. As for the story itself, it's tense and mostly exciting. The first Federation ship designs are very simple, but they work. The Viserius could dwarf a Borg cube. A Balok, both of him, really, is suitably alien. I was relieved to see that the obvious puppet was exactly that, and at once charmed and creeped out by his childlike persona. Bailey was an interesting character, too, completely in over his head, and he gets a nice speech. Spock's wasting time. Everybody else just sitting around. Somebody's got to do something. You see, Bailey. What do they want from us? Let's find out what they want us they to want do. They want us to lose our heads. We've Bailey, only got no. eight minutes left. Seven minutes and 41 oh, seconds. He's doing a countdown. Practically in the watch. What are you all out of your minds? End of watch. It's the end of everything. What are you, robots? Wound up toy soldiers? Don't you know when you're dying? Watching regulations and orders. What do they mean? Bailey, you're relieved. Escort him to his quarters, Doctor. Let's go. If I had a complaint, it would be with some of the production elements. For example, everyone is sweating like a pig in this episode, and that's before the radiation levels go up. Problems with makeup, probably. Uh, the direction is also wonky, with some extreme and wobbly camera shots, and a couple of scenes where, besides the incidental music blaring, nothing happens. I kept thinking they were cutting to commercial and then didn't. Here's your lesson for this one. The recipe for Trania. It's equal parts water and sugar with four teaspoons of tang. Serves for... Uh, Highly rewatchable. A great introduction to the series for neophytes with the ideals presented by Star Trek in full view. It's fun. It's exciting. Coming in 12th was The Menagerie Part 1. We like it because it puts the cage into the canon in a very clever way. But two parts? Mom, I can't wait that long. If you saw The Cage 11 shows ago... Really, it turns into a clip show. Now, the menagerie looks to be a very clever editing job using the precious footage from the cage. We'll talk about that more when we talk about the ending. Uh, since here, it's all introduction and no story changes needed to be made. For now, it manages to make the regular Star Trek production a little out-budgeted. The lasers and alien stun wand have excellent effects, for example, and the planet environment looks immense. Uh, not to mention the, f the first tracking shot to the bridge. Still, Starbase 11 looks nice for the standards of the time, and we get our first look at a shuttle, admittedly unimpressive. And there's another story here, too. It's too bad they had to turn Captain Pike into an invalid, but that wheelchair has become 
iconic. A Spock's kidnapping of Pike is quite impressive. That Vulcan's dangerous. But for all that, it's hard to manufacture tension once the trial starts. You've got Mendez trying to constantly shut it down, but otherwise all the cliffhangers have to come from the cage. And we know Pike came out of that adventure safe and sound. Not sure I understand the function of Miss Piper either. She's in, bats her eyelashes, and is immediately out. Kind of a waste. Oh, have I introduced Miss Piper, Jim? This is Captain Kirk, Miss Piper. I recognized the captain immediately. A mutual friend described you, sir. Lieutenant Helen Johansson? Helen... Describe. She merely mentioned she knew you, sir. So a lesson for would-be showrunners, don't throw away those rejected pilot episodes. I'd set rewatchability at medium-high. High if you don't have access to the cage, medium if you do. It's still an interesting editing experiment, and who can tire of looking into Vina's eyes, you know? The first part, at least, is made mostly up of new footage, and it's a fairly exciting start to what would become a sit-down adventure. Now on to part two. I find it hard to believe the events of the past 24 hours. Or the plea of Mr. Spock, standing general court-martial. How do you plead to the charge of unlawfully taking command of this starship? Guilty. Of sabotaging the computers of this vessel and locking it on a course for planet Talos IV. Guilty. And of forcibly attempting to transport Captain Pike to that planet. Guilty. Why? Again, easy access to most of the cage and that Vina is lovely any day of the week. Except when she's green. You know, I never really dug the green thing. The big problem with it is that Kirk and company have nothing to do but play at being cabbage heads. Here's the deal. This part gives us most of the cage. And if you don't have any other way of accessing the original pilot, you know, that's great. If you do, then there's little to draw you to the second part of the menagerie. The start of the episode is kind of funky with the theatrical what has gone before against black background, nicely surreal in the context of the Talosian adventure. But from there, oof, we only hear from the trial to, one, remind us that we're watching Star Trek, and two, to dumb down a story that NBC executives thought too intellectual. Interruptions to answer questions like, is that really Vina? Or, or to explain that we're seeing illusions it's all totally unnecessary. The ending with Mendez being an illusion, yet also reviewing the Talosian transmission back at Starbase 11 is likewise puzzling. I mean, what's the difference? It's all wrapped up with a nice bow, so that, so that it's like it never happened. Blah. I will say that the re-editing of the end of the cage is a clever finale. Though it hardly gives Spock time to beam Pike down to the planet, but anyway, all that stuff from the cage is eminently watchable, even if some of it makes the regular series look a little cheap uh, in comparison. Here, I'll set rewatchability at low or high. If it's your only means of watching the cage, then by all means. If not, there's little reason to watch anything but the last two minutes of the framing story. Tonight, the Caridian players present Hamlet. Another in a series of living plays presented in space, dedicated to the tradition of classic theater. The Conscience of the King. Well, I'm a sap for Shakespeare. Not sure I buy the romance, though. Let's, let's look at it. Now, I can't help but like this episode, because it's the one with the strongest Shakespeare connection. But I think it stands up regardless of my personal bias. The episode doesn't just feature a troupe of Shakespearean actors. It also draws parallels with Hamlet in Kirk's delaying of his revenge on Kodos. Riley has shades of Laertes, Lenore of Ophelia. Strong performances throughout, though perhaps, you know, a bit stagey. It works for characters that are essentially actors, but the term drama queen comes to mind at times. Lenore is a bit over the top at all times, but I still found the ending affecting. The same goes for Kirk's refusal to answer the, the doctor at the end, even if I had trouble buying into the romance side of the story. You really cared for her, didn't you? Stand by, Mr. Leslie. All channels clear to Uhura? All channels clear, sir. Whenever you're ready, Mr. Leslie. 
You're not going to answer my question, are you? Ahead, warp factor one, Mr. Leslie. That's an answer. The story has some weird stuff going on that I feel I need to point out. Uhura plays Spock's harp, for example. But I'm sorry, but I'm not a big fan of Beyond Antares. It's a weirdly dissonant melody. The Doctor takes a break to booze it up and makes an untrue crack about Vulcans having been conquered. Alexander Kurtz's Star Trek theme plays at the cocktail party, and it's diegetic. I, I guess it's a popular jazz standard in the future. And we see the last of Yeoman Rand as far as the production schedule goes. And it's a quick look at Lenore while coming out of the turbo lift. Not so much as a line. I guess Miss Whitney was having her troubles and they were writing her out of the show at this time. Hopefully, she gets a better goodbye in air date schedule. And that will be in Balance of Terror. Glad to see Riley again, the return of which paints the picture of a real and steady crew aboard the Enterprise. Mr. Leslie here is also a recurring extra. See if you spotted the lesson in this one? Yep, that's where the name from one of the Simpsons aliens comes from. The other one is in a later season. Uh, medium rewatchability, some great scenes, but sometimes veers into the theatrical. Well, that's sort of appropriate, isn't it? Episode 15, Balance of Terror. We like this one because the Romulans are so cool. We might not like this one because of a botched last appearance for Grace Lee Whitney's Yeoman Rand. Well, like the Corbomite Maneuver, this is a shipboard episode dealing with first contact with an alien species, again featuring a navigator that has problems with the captain's orders. Despite these similarities... It all turns out very differently. The introduction of the Romulans to the series is excellent. The basics are there, a culture based on glory, ambition, and politics. The invisible ship and destruction of four outposts speaks to their treachery as well. The Romulan commander, brilliantly played by Mark Leonard, is an oddity among Romulans. He's actually an honorable man. We really feel for the soldier ordered to do a duty he finds repugnant, who loses a friend during the battle and must make the ultimate sacrifice by the end. Standing by to beam your survivors aboard our ship. Prepare to abandon your vessel. No. No, that's not our way. I regret that we meet in this way. You and I are of a kind. In a different reality. I could have called you friend. The revelation that the Romulans are Vulcanoid makes more sense than all the humanoid species in the galaxy since Vulcans had space travel long before humans did. And it sets up Stiles' prejudice. Kirk immediately jumps to his friend's defense in a great moment. Here there's no room for prejudice, an interesting mirror to Kirk's later attitudes towards the Klingons. The commitment to showing shipboard life still in effect, with the well-remembered wedding ceremony and thanks to the unlucky couple, the weapons room operations. Kirk's walk down the corridor as the credits start to roll after he's spoken with Martine is a strong, subtle handling of the captain dealing with casualties and the pressures of command. Sulu comes off as a respected advisor, and Uhura shows she can hold the navigator's position. Now, too bad that Yeoman Rand couldn't have been as effective. Even Scotty gets to walk a girl down the aisle, especially since this is her last aired episode. The most she does here is give Kirk an inappropriate hug on the bridge. Uh, where's the sharp character I actually liked and respected in Charlie X? But that's minor, as are any problems with this tight military thriller. The physics are bizarre and often dictated by the parallels of submarine warfare. They run silent as if voices could be heard across the void. Their phasers are really torpedoes to give the effect of depth charges. The Enterprise outruns a plasma blast as if it were a torpedo, etc. 
and the Romulans are awkwardly based on the Roman Empire, and I've, I've never really understood the title. But you forget all that when you watch it. Great acting, good model shots, and a real chess game between the commanders makes you disregard the flaws. Apparently, well, it's quite okay for a superior officer to hug or marry you. He's quite a catch, after all. Those gender politics aside, the rewatchability here is high. It's really too bad the Romulans so seldom return to the original series and movies, but what makes them great here is their commander, a definitely atypical member of the species. Next up, Shore Leave. I like it because it's filmed on glorious location, including the first ever shots of Vasquez Rocks. I don't like it so much because I can't stand Finnegan. Okay, let's look at it. Though basically inoffensive, this episode is replete with moments that annoy me. Uh, it does start off well, though, with the crew badly needing shore leave after the last three months, which would include most episodes since the start of the series. And Kirk's hesitation while voicing his log is a good human moment. Great location shooting, though maybe they should have limited themselves to a single environment, saving others for other worlds. But the variety is nice, and we'll tend to see the same rocks each time we, they go on location. The creators remember Sulu's interest in botany and add collecting weapons to his many hobbies. McCoy's death is well-realized, and Kirk reacts much as the Romulan commander did to losing his closest friend in Balance of Terror. The caretaker has only a brief scene, but he's immediately likable. And Barrows, the first of many replacement yeomen, surprisingly goes for McCoy. Okay, but that doesn't save the episode for me. The script is haphazard and messy. There's a huge reset button at the end. And they just try too hard to make the episode lighthearted, concluding it with extended force laughter. I'm most annoyed by Finnegan. And his fight with Kirk goes on way too long as the funny music gets more and more strident. I hate it. Here I am! <laughs> Run! Other than that, everyone acts giddy and out of character, doing things they really shouldn't. Uh, Kirk has too much fun after McCoy's been killed. The Doctor's romance is awkward and strange, unless they'd been seeing each other already. Uh, Sulu gets trigger-happy, and no one, no one figures out their imaginations are coming alive until the very end. And I also object to 23rd century characters having to explain to each other about 20th century things. Do, do people in the future really not know what a plane, a firearm, and an amusement park are? Barrow's hat, her amazing self-repairing uniform, Alice as a blonde, uh, they apparently still watch Disney films in the future, uh, Martine, referred to as Teller, yet still Angela, being all too cozy with Rodriguez after her fiancé died in the last episode, the ethical questions raised by re-sparking an old romance with a plastic dummy. I'll stop now before I think of something else. My takeaway is that getting beat up is a great way to relieve stress. Sleep forever, Jimmy boy! Like, what? So I'm, I'm afraid I have to give this a low rewatchability index. I know it's well-regarded, and I don't think it's truly bad. It's not. But please, don't make me watch it again. Next up, the Galileo 7. I like it because of Kirk's unwavering search for his lost crewman. I don't like it so much because of the funky alien apes. You know, for starters. Okay, this episode starts out nicely. With some interesting effects, the quasar formation, the shuttle launch, and it's got an engaging story. How will they survive? We might think of Apollo 13 in relation to this, for example. Survival stories are always tense and engrossing. And while that's true here, and Kirk's search for his men adds to the drama, there are so many things that, are, that just let the episode down. For example, I might mention Ferris, the first of the many interferers that take command of the ship for no discernible reason other than to make the plot work. I remind you, Captain, I'm entirely opposed to this delay. 
the first in a long Star Trek tradition, but one of the least interesting. Uh, speaking of traditions, this is the second ending with the extended forced laughter. I hope they don't make it a habit. Now here, Uhura even points and laughs at Spock. It's bad. Uh, indeed, attitudes towards Spock are illogical throughout, if you'll permit the expression. It seems that any time his crew was against his ideas, I was in total agreement with them. He takes their advice and makes a show of force to the giant apes, and when it turns for the worse, they're all, what, you expected the apes to act logically? And it was their idea! My frustration with the episode goes up with every such scene. Spock acts emotionally all along, being angry and shouting in places, and then the breakdown where he questions his logic. It's a scene that doesn't work for me. Yet they keep calling him a machine. And at the end, the so-called act of desperation is quite logical to me. They were going to die anyway. There obviously was a chance. But this is the one time they say he did something irrational. Saving graces are a couple of Spock's jabbing remarks early on and the fact that Mr. Scott is very professional and follows orders. And then there are size issues with both the apes, which might be anything between 8 and 20 feet tall, judging from on-screen evidence, and the shuttle itself is kind of like a TARDIS, isn't it? Just because an alien race is using stone spears doesn't mean they don't have access to enlargement beam technology, which kind of sounds like something I might get spammed about. So I give this one a low. Though the episode is suspenseful, there's no reason you can't watch any number of Spocks in Command and we don't trust him episodes instead. Welcome to an island of peace on my stormy little planet of Gothos. Ah, the Squire of Gothos. I like it because Trillane is a prototype for Q and, and it's got a classic ending. I don't like it so much because it's kind of a silly runaround and I find Trillane more annoying than anything. Now, a godlike being playing with the crew is a Star Trek staple. But in this case, it's all kind of silly and pointless. When your antagonist can do anything, you just have to wait for him to defeat himself, going through set piece after set piece until that happens. The mystery starts out as interesting and Trelane isn't immediately annoying, but as the episode goes on, he becomes more and more childish and whiny. Once you know how the episode ends, a very classic and watchable ending, there's no mystery and you just want Kirk to slap him a couple times. Which he does! Uh, the main characters are all strong here, including Sulu, Scotty, and Uhura, who are still being used interestingly. Uh, still, sitting through harpsichord music, badly staged sword fights, and that ridiculous mirror scene, what was that machine for anyway? isn't something I look forward to sitting through again. The lesson is that, you know, don't break your toys unless you want mom and dad to take them away. This has gone far enough. Yeah, but you always stop me when I'm having fun. You're disobedient and cruel. We've told you before. Time to come in now, Tremaine. But I don't want to come in and I won't. I'm a general and I won't listen to you. If you cannot take proper care of your pets, you cannot have them at all. Oh, but I was winning. I was winning. So I'll give this one a medium. I'm a bit on the fence between low and medium, but the classic finale and the strong performances by the regulars, uh, not that William Campbell doesn't do well with what he's handed, make me recommend it mildly. But here's Beatlemania's Tim Wallace again with a second opinion. Greetings and felicitations. I'm back to tell you about another one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. Season 1, Episode 17, The Squire of Gothos. And if you're familiar with the episode... I hope you got that reference, because I don't normally talk like that. In the episode, the crew of the Enterprise, on a routine supply mission, encounters a rogue planet. When Mr. Sulu tries to navigate around it, he suddenly vanishes from the bridge of the Enterprise. Very soon after, Kirk disappears as well. An away team is sent down to the planet, and we lose communication. What we find out, though, is that the crew is now in the requested presence of General Trelane Retired as he introduces himself, the Squire of Gothos. Why? 
because he wants to talk to them about his favorite topic, warfare of ancient Earth. Trillane soon brings down Spock, Uhura, and Yeoman Ross as well. Kirk quickly becomes agitated and provokes Trillane into a duel, smashing a mirror that he and Spock had identified as potentially the way that Trillane was controlling everything around them, from their costumes to their surroundings. It does damage some minor machinery, and the crew is able to get back to the Enterprise. But before they can warp away, the planet reappears in front of them, and Trelane brings them back to Gothos and puts them on trial for treason, with Trelane himself as judge, jury, and executioner. After sentencing Kirk to death by hanging, Kirk tries to stall by making a suggestion that uh, he has a better idea. Let himself be the prey in a royal hunt so that Trelane can hunt him down. Trelane gleefully accepts the idea, and just when it looks like Kirk's about to die, two energy beings appear, and we find out Trelane is nothing but a child. An omnipotent, all-powerful child, but a child nonetheless. And the energy beings are his parents. Scolding their child and sending the crew of the Enterprise on their way, Trelane and his parents disappear. I ended this episode as a kid, always wishing I could see more of Trelane. Sadly, we never did. Not until the next generation introduced Q. And Peter David, in a 1994 novel called Q Squared, introduced the idea that Q and Trelane are both part of the Q continuum. Trelane is just a child of the Q. I said we don't see Trelane again, but that's not entirely true. William Campbell appears later in the series as Koloth, the Klingon, and his costume, a blue military uniform with ruffled white collar and sleeves, appears in an episode of Gilligan's Island, worn by Mr. Howell, and later in an episode of The Monkees. Just a curious bit of trivia I thought I'd throw out there. But again, great episode, love William Campbell, and love the character of Trelane. Arena. It's got the Gorn. It's got an ingenious solution. It's got great location shooting. The one irritating thing? Another godlike being so soon. Okay, maybe I'm a Godzilla fan, but I can't help but like Arena. The Gorn, maybe a guy in a rubber suit with a very limited expression, but he works for me, and it's really a shame that we never saw much of the species again using later technology. It helps that we don't see a Gorn until late in the episode, starting out as a mystery and a suspenseful battle where you can't see the silver of your enemy's eyes. If your alien can't be too realistic, at least go for realism elsewhere. And they do that here with an impressive, huge outdoor set for Cestus III and the always cool Vasquez rocks for the Metron battleground. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy also appear to do their own stunts in the explosive barrage scene. Even the styrofoam rocks are looking appropriately heavy for the most part. Uh, The fight itself has its ups and downs with some dreadfully slow blows from the Gorn, for example, but he's redeemed by his sheer toughness. Had I been Kirk, I would have run for days and days after that first exchange of rocks. Nice solution at the end. And I mean, both the gunpowder weapon and Kirk sparing the Gorn's life. The revelation that we were in the wrong to start with was nice too. My only real worry about this episode is that we just saw a godlike being in the previous episode, Trelane. How many of these things are there? Well, it turns out there are lots. Uh, good thing they played the Metrons totally differently. My takeaway? How to make explosive gunpowder. Who said television could be educational? All right, kids, let's go blow stuff up. So rewatchability, obviously, high, lots of money on the screen, the future of siege warfare, a neat alien, and a humanistic resolution. There's the core of Star Trek right there. It's one of the most memorable of the series. No. 
No, I won't kill you. Maybe you thought you were protecting yourself when you attacked the outpost. No, I won't kill him. Do you hear? You'll have to get your entertainment someplace else. And here's David Ace Gutierrez for an alternate review of the episode. So the reason I think Arena is uh, probably one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek is because it doesn't end where it begins. What, what kind of is a routine mission turns out to be a bluff and then turns into the question of who's in the right or who's in the wrong when it comes to territory and uh, proving that just because you ha- you're more technologically advanced that it doesn't mean that you're less savage or more savage than a, a reptilian dude in, in 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 leopard print. You know, it's it's um it it's really the best of Star Trek to me because it, it asks a moral question. It actually casts the Federation perhaps in the role of being wrong in trying to explore Cestus, um, a territory that the Gorn claims is theirs. So when the, the Federation has their own um, colony, then they're encroaching upon. The, the Gorn's territory, and then that becomes the whole thing. But then you have the Metrons who have decided to turn this into a game between Captain Kirk and the Gorn captain and make them battle for their amusement in many ways. Even though, And then you have Kirk saying, you know what, guys? I'm not going to kill. I'm, I ain't your monkey. I'm not going to kill for you. We are, civil, we are civilized. And then they prove it to the Metrons. And you have Bones claiming to be a sensualist. And you have Sulu demonstrating once again that he's a fantastic captain. I mean, he's not a captain yet, but well on his way. Well on his way. Good on you, Hikaru. Um, so that's, uh, that's Arena. Also, oh, also, visually, one of the most striking of the episodes at, at Vasquez Rocks in California. Um, and, uh, also famous for being in uh, Bill and Ted's sequel, as they're watching the show. I could go on, but it is, it, it, it is classic. It, it, it is one of the greatest of the original series. Episode 20, Tomorrow is Yesterday. I like it because it's what made Star Trek IV possible. I don't like it so much because the plot is a total mess, uh, not a good sign for future time travel stories. And its attempts at humor are just that. Attempts. Let's look at it. It all starts out interestingly, with a very different teaser. You don't even realize you're watching Star Trek until its final seconds, and none of the regulars make an appearance until after the credit sequence. They give Scotty, Sulu, and Uhura stuff to do, which is good, and some of the ideas are interesting, such as the basic premise. But aside from that, this is a dreadful mess. To start with, the crew is not working at peak efficiency. They get thrown into the past by accident, get seen by accident, destroy a plane by accident, and then on purpose, they keep showing two 20th centurions all sorts of things they shouldn't. They don't try to isolate Christopher and the sergeant from Spock. They give them information about the future and Christopher's own personal future at every turn. Spock makes a fact-checking mistake. Security lets Christopher sneak out. Kirk keeps arguing with his seductive computer as Christopher laughs at him. Speaking of which, if there's humor to be had with this female computer voice, I've yet to grasp it. Computed and recorded, dear. Computer, you will not address me in that manner. Compute. Computed. Dear. 
It's not only ridiculous and insulting by today's standards, but it also fits badly with the tone of the overall episode. Well, the tone. It's all over the place, to be frank. The base personnel being particularly silly. The episode even features the weirdest, most slapsticky fight choreography in all of Trek. And that may be saying something. But finally, a couple of words on the time travel elements. They... It just don't make sense. Not the last time that happens in Trek, but the major reset button at the end is particularly bad. How is history erased this way with Christopher not remembering anything, but the crew of the Enterprise remembering everything? Would beaming you into yourself do anything like that? It just doesn't work. So, low rewatchability. I hear this is a well-liked episode, but while it isn't unentertaining, it's just silly pablum with little common sense applied and the characters looking incompetent. Then there's Court Martial. I might like it because legal episodes always have a good speech or two. This one's no different. I don't like it because it's got a lot of dreadful acting. I'm a fan of legal shows, and I generally like courtroom scenes in Star Trek, which hits the right balance between moving arguments and detective work. So a little Boston legal, a little Matlock, you know. How Spock hits upon the computer glitch and the final revelation of Finney's status are both high points of the episode. And Kirk's crew coming to his defense and his own defiance are well played. Unfortunately, the episode is marred by some terrible acting and direction. Stone and Cogley are good characters, even Finney if a bit over the top, but Shaw's romance with Kirk is mannered and unbelievable. Perhaps it's her dialogue that's undeliverable. Do you think it would cause a complete breakdown of discipline if a lowly lieutenant kissed a starship captain on the bridge of his ship? Let's try. Likewise, Kirk's old classmates can't act themselves out of a paper bag, and Jamie's southern bell accent is incredibly melodramatic. As for direction, the episode seems to have gone a bit long, and Kirk's voiceover intrudes to give us information that should have been part of a scene. Doesn't it also seem that Cogley knows Finney is alive because of Jamie's change of heart? We're never told! since she disappears from the story after that. The lesson is, next time you build a starship, don't put the jettison button so close to more actively used buttons. Typos can be deadly. So, a medium here. The court theatrics and the mystery remain interesting, but you have to ignore a lot of wooden acting and choppy editing to get through it. Moving right along to The Return of the Archons. It's got some historical firsts. First time Kirk breaks the Prime Directive, first time he makes a machine blow itself up. Uh, why I don't like it? Landru, pretty boring villain. Landru's body is, at once, a criticism of religious sex and a preview of the Borg. Uh, but while these are worthy ideas to center a science fiction story around, there are way too many things that happen just for the plot's sake for me to like this one. A Sulu can be absorbed on the street, but the others have to be brought to an absorption chamber. Uh, Kirk and company conveniently walk into a house just happens to be owned by a member of the underground. The computer destroys itself after not very much of an argument. Uh, Spock's ears are never noticed, etc. It, it's the first time we hear of the Prime Directive in those words, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and Kirk immediately breaks it, justifying his actions, of course, but still. And not for the last time, by destroying the machine that runs a planet. His anti-machine attitudes will surface again, of course. The culture created by Landru has a number of unexplained elements as well, like the tubes that can kill, it's like super advanced tech, and the Red Hour festival needed to keep human instincts from surfacing, maybe? No real mention is made of the Archon screw at the end of the episode, either. The 19th to 20th century look of the place is cheap and boring, and the whole thing is very drab. I guess when you show people with no soul, things like that are going to happen... Still, the lesson for showrunners is if you're going to have wooden acting, write it into the script. All kidding aside, I'm still giving this one a low, dull, it's lifeless, it's contrived, even if it is historically significant. The good of the body is the prime directive. 
on to Space Seed. We like it because Khan is positively magnetic. He's possibly the greatest Star Trek villain of all time. Why we might not like it? Well, if I had to nitpick, that fist fight at the end has problems. Let's review it. Ricardo Montalban eats up the screen as Khan. He's a charismatic and ambitious tyrant from a bygone age, immediately likable but incredibly dangerous. He's not evil. He's merely ruthless and totally confident that his order is what the world needs. It's a testament to Kirk, or really to Shatner, that he can hold his own against Khan. You are an excellent tactician, Captain. You let your second-in-command attack while you sit and watch for weakness. You have a tendency to express ideas in military terms, Mr. Khan. This is a social occasion. <laughs> it has been said that uh, social occasions are only warfare concealed. Many prefer it more honest, more open. You fled. Why? Were you afraid? I've never been afraid. But you left at the very time mankind needed courage. We offered the world order. We. Excellent. Excellent. The two quickly come to admire one another. That admiration gives us a couple of great scenes. The crew's loyalty, especially Uhura's defiance, is also a great moment. And the final solution opens the way for a sequel, if you know which one I mean. As for McGivers, she's an interesting character, well acted by Madeline Rue, and her seduction is a powerful moment. If there's a letdown, aside from the 1990s not being a great choice for Khan's origin, it's the fight between Khan and Kirk at the end. It's an easy and cliched climax. Uh, it's acted out with stuntmen that look nothing like the stars and is one with a beating stick. Obviously made of light plastic. Uh, what you gonna do? Definitely a high. Khan is a most memorable character, and the great performances of all involved carry the episode. This one's top-notch. A Taste of Armageddon. We like it because Kirk rearranges an alien society with incredible confidence. Y you just want to play along. You sank my battleship! Okay, let's look at it. Isn't it a bit early to trot out a number of cliches pulled from prior episodes? I mean, we've got the annoying superior whose orders would endanger the ship back from the uh, Galileo 7. Uh, Fox redeems himself by the end, but he's still a fool. And then Kirk destroying a computer from that's from Return of the Archons, which barely aired a couple of weeks before, to change not one, but two societies. And the good news is, it does work better this time. There's no mention of the Prime Directive, for one thing, and Kirk confidently arrives at his solution. It makes a comment on the human condition at the same time. And while a utopia based on a single absurd idea is always hard to sell, as realistic, the creators do their best to make Eminiar believable. Uh, the matte painting for the city is excellent. The various works of art all over the complex help sell the idea of a culture worth preserving. It's too bad about their guards' helmets, which are amongst the worst costume ideas ever to appear on the show. But Also, uh, note a new power for Mr. Spock, that of clouding a person's mind through a wall with his telepathy. It's interesting and well done here. So I give this one a medium, held back because of its same old, same old feeling, but happens to be the best of the Computer Society Destroyed by Kirk episodes. You realize what you have done? Yes, I do. I've given you back the horrors of war. Episode 25, This Side of Paradise. Mr. Spock in love. It's always interesting to see him display emotions. Well, the music gets annoyingly intrusive in this one. It all starts with an interesting mystery and a good use of location shooting, though I have a tendency to call it Star Trek on the farm. And it offers a number of great moments, almost all relating to Mr. Spock. There's something engaging about seeing Spock deal with actual emotions and his chance at love is rather moving. The show's last words, especially. 
Well, that's the second time man's been thrown out of paradise. No, no, boss. This time we walked out on our own. Maybe we weren't meant for paradise. Maybe we were meant to fight our way through. Struggle. Claw our way up. Scratch for every inch of the way. Maybe we can't stroll to the music of the lute. We must march to the sound of drums. Poetry, Captain. Non-regulation. We haven't heard much from you about Omicron Seti III, Mr. Spock. I have little to say about it, Captain. Except that for the first time in my life, I was happy. Kirk getting him angry is also quite effective. On the flip side, Jill Ireland's Lila doesn't become engaging until the final minutes. I guess that's just what happens when your character's high on spores. Indeed, aside from Spock, there's little interest in seeing any of the crew, and by the way, glad to see Sulu again nonetheless, uh, hopped up on goofballs. McCoy's sudden southern drawl is particularly annoying, but less annoying than the intrusive musical cues from Shoreleaf. Now, No Shot of Lila comes unaccompanied by the romantic Ruth theme, and for some reason, Spock dangling from a branch is scored with the chivalry theme. You shouldn't really notice the incidental music. It should be used to support the tone, or whatever, but here, it kept pulling me out of the story. A story that I find interesting and even moving, nonetheless. The lesson? The expression, wake up and smell the flowers, doesn't always apply. I give it a medium. It's a good story, especially for Spock, and looks very nice, but the annoying music and another run of blissful acting from many of the regulars, uh, just watch The Return of the Archons and The Naked Time again for more examples, kept me from enjoying it more. Captain's Log, Stardate 3196.1. A distress call from the Phrygium production station on Janus 6 has brought the Enterprise to that long-established colony. Mr. Spock... Dr. McCoy and I have beamed down to meet with Chief Engineer Vanderberg, Administrative Head of Janus 6. All right, let's assume there is a monster. What has it done? Uh, the Devil in the Dark. I like it because the Horda is the most memorable alien from the original series. Oh, and it's the first time McCoy says he's a doctor and not something else. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. You're a healer. There's a patient. That's an order. Well, many find the Horda laughable. I don't think she's any more laughable than the Papiamashi sets, really. It's an excellent episode that starts as a monster story, a la Mantrap, but turns into a message of tolerance right up Star Trek's alley. As with the Gorn, we're at fault in this story, and the antagonist was basically protecting itself. Kirk, while adamant that the creature be killed at first, even after Spock's pacifist objections, changes his mind once confronted by the Horda. It leads to some very good set pieces, such as McCoy's healing touch. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. And Spock's impressive mind meld with the monster. Since the creature is basically a big rubber rug, it's up to Leonard Nimoy to make us empathize with her. And it's perhaps amazing that we do. Now, I know a lot of people find the Horda ridiculous, but the design is unique and its method of locomotion interestingly achieved. It looks real enough to me that I don't think about there being a guy underneath. I'm more let down by the matte painting of the uh, mining colony, which looks too much like a painting when compared to some others like Starbase 11 and Minyar 7. The cavern sets are pretty fake, especially the smooth studio floors, but I like the blue atmosphere. It gives the whole piece. The, the other thing I notice is that No Kill Eye is a lot easier to understand than Shaka when the walls fell. This one's a high. 
while it isn't a perfect story, the pump MacGuffin, the Horde of Steels, rather than destroys, is particularly contrived. It's a nice crossing of genres with a marvelous example of first contact with new life, entirely deserving of being a classic. Errand of Mercy. The Klingons make their first appearance, and their representative, Kor, is really cool. Aside from Kor, they're a pretty unimpressive bunch of extras. Okay, the Klingons may seem very different from the way they would be portrayed in TNG and beyond, but our point of view is limited. Though the armies might as well be Starfleet red shirts for all the fearsomeness they exude, just the usual extras and stuntmen and greasy makeup, really, John Colicos' Kor is a much better realized character in contrast to his lieutenant, who's a terrible robotic actor. His respect for Kirk, or Barone, as Kirk is calling himself, as the only defiant Organian, is something that has carried over into the Klingon honor code we've come to know. Well, have we a ram among the sheep? You object to us taking him? He's done nothing. Nothing at all. Coming from an Organian, yours is practically an act of rebellion. Very good. So you welcome me. You also welcome me. You're here. There's nothing I can do about it. Good, honest hatred. Very refreshing. Glory is also part of the equation, and the Organians' prophecy that the Federation and Klingon Empire would one day be friends has proven to be true. Kor takes a drink with his enemy, which will become part of his character in DS9. So it's historically important. The story loses a lot of its mystery and interest when you've seen it before, but the ending is great with Kirk getting so frenetic that he's, he actually tries to defend his right to wage war. It's an excellent moment with Spock looking on the Organians with uh, admiration. The episode moves at a nice clip. Sulu gets to be in command for the first time, and though Kirk is a bit of a loose cannon, the main players all give an engaging performance. The only real letdown is the Klingons in general, so easily beaten by Kirk and Spock, not looking like anything interesting and their ships never being seen. Look, it's a high. As an historically important episode, it's good that it works, but who'd have thought this was the beginning of something so special? The alternative factor. The final explanation holds some interest. It's got the worst beard in television history and a story that's a mess across the board from plot to effects. I find it very difficult to watch this episode and care. The principal reason is that the main characters are little more than bystanders in this one. They experience the problem, but an explanation and a solution are finally offered by the anti-Lazarus, and Kirk and Spock are basically relegated to pushing buttons and putting that plan into action. Aside from a good scene where they work out the twin universes theory and Spock calling Lazarus a liar to his face, there's little for them to do. There could have been more, but they're all on autopilot, letting an obviously deranged Lazarus wander through the ship or the planet's surface unwatched, or in the final fight watching Kirk wrestle the baddie without so much as moving to help. The whole plot is in fact a mess, hard to understand until the final minutes and meandering way too much. We travel to the planet and sigbay a couple times without adding anything to the storyline. Where's Scotty in this? I don't mind the character of Lieutenant Masters who got all his lines, but it's just odd that an important member of the crew would go missing like this and be replaced by someone in blue, you know, the sciences. To make matters worse, the special effects, while numerous, 
are terrible and confusing. The overlaid picture of a nebula that sometimes means we're winking out, sometimes not. The blurry effect, the polarized figures fighting in the corridor, the spinning newspaper transitions. I kind of found interesting the idea of making the real universe location shooting and making the antimatter universe studio bound. But so many other things representing the clash between universes, you just don't know what, what's what anymore. The makeup isn't much better, with Lazarus sporting a terrible fake beard, a beard that can't even remain consistent from scene to scene, going from thick to thin and back again, which I understand was because they had to recast the actor at the last minute, and, but nevertheless. And even the ADR is noticeably messy in this. So it's a low. It might make a passable episode of The Outer Limits, but its lack of focus on the Star Trek characters sinks this one, even before you consider its other failures. It's probably the only real turkey from the first season. There is, of course, no escape. Let me read some of the behind-the-scenes uh, information that my good friend Andrew Gilbertson sent me about this episode. Notably, he says, the beard inconsistency was due to Fred Phillips sending some apprentices on location. They clearly weren't ready for the big leagues yet. The alternate universe being set bound wasn't even intentional. They just ran out of location shooting days uh, because they were behind schedule. And Matt Jeffries rushed a set bound replacement out to finish shooting. Also, a major reason for the meandering story was Lieutenant Masters. She was Lazarus's love's interest and a chemist, hence the blue uniform. She was wooed by Lazarus, a man weary and lonely after so long on the hunt, helped him steal the crystals, and was trapped in the corridor with him by the time she realized he was insane. The climax was Kirk trying to rescue her and seal the corridor as the two Lazaruses fought. However, the female crew member falling for the guest star and betraying the ship was deemed too similar to the in-development Space Seed, and they cut down her part. Then the network balked at an interracial romance based on the casting, so, still two years from Plato's stepchildren, eh? they chopped out the romance completely, taking most of Master's point, most of Lazarus' sympathetic characterization and insight into his character, Kirk's chance for a proactive role in the climax, and about 20 minutes of plot with it, necessitating writing a bunch of runaround where Lazarus goes back to the planet and falls off a rock again as replacement filler. Because of all this, John Drew Barrymore, hired to play Lazarus, quit the project when he saw the new script during a costume fitting, a fitting for him to start shooting that next morning. So they brought in Robert Brown as a ringer the next morning, literally shoving a script into his hands as he was being costumed and made up, and then putting him right before the cameras. All things considered, it's kind of a miracle that we got anything. And the failures are definitely not due to the actors or production staff who did the absolute best they could with the mess, the writers, studio, and mutant this guest star left them. So there you go. Behold. A gateway to your own past, if you wish. The City on the Edge of Forever. Though Harlan Ellison claims the story was butchered to better fit the show, it still managed to be the best Star Trek was to produce during its original run. Great dialogue, great time travel story, and a truly moving, tragic ending. That's why we like it. The only reason not to like it is people laughing at the fans because there's a giant donut in the so-called best episode. Let's review it more closely. Where to begin? Um, after the wretchedness of the alternative factor, we get the best the series has to offer. Okay, the time travel Jeopardy makes more sense than most, with history being erased and our heroes going back in time to fix things. At first, there's amusement to be had with the fish-out-of-water elements, but once it's revealed that Edith Keeler may have to die, the episode moves with the inexorable pace of a tragedy. 
her every scene after that, even if Joyous is tinged by her coming death. She's a little naive in her proposals for the future, but her uncanny intuition makes her immediately endearing, and we can see why Kirk would fall in love with her. She does a particularly good job of grasping Kirk and Spock's relationship. I particularly love her finishing Spock's line. Captain. Even when he doesn't say it, he does. And that's only one of many great lines throughout the episode. There are too many to name, but some that come to mind include the whole stone knives and bearskin speech, uh, McCoy's speech about sewing up people like garments, Captain's Log, no star date. The centerpiece of the story is, of course, the final tragedy. The street is way too wide, creating a strange staging for the accident, but the moment is undeniably powerful. I could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? He knows, Doctor. He knows. Uh, as is the return to the Guardian's planet. The crew immediately sees that something's terribly wrong, and despite the Guardian's invitation, Kirk's last lines are heartbreaking. Let's get the hell out of here. We're right there with him on that one. Great words, great acting. And McCoy's dementia should not go without mention either. And action coming from the characters, not because the plot demands it. The creators even chipped in for a new planet effect, probably knowing they had something special here. Apparently, it takes a lot of effort to destroy Harlan Ellison's work. So this is a high. I could literally watch this one two times in a row. And it would still bring a tear to my eye each time. It's the best episode of the entire original series, and quite possibly in all of Star Trek. For more, let's listen to Only Living Boy's David Gallagher. The City on the Edge of Forever, the infamous episode written by Harlan Ellison. On paper, it's brilliant and filled with potential, chock full of drug dealers, a stark raving McCoy, and Depression-era politics that ask the viewer to consider sacrificing one precious life for the greater good of the universe. As aired, the episode never realizes its full potential, but the ending is brutal, and it gives everything a special place in my heart um, as one of Star Trek's original most classic and most powerful episodes. It's season finale time. First season ends with Operation Annihilate. Good suspense and use of a location. Box blinding is a classic moment. And the crew fights flying pancakes, you know. It's hard to get over. Like, sure. The Denevan parasites look fairly silly. Especially once they start squeaking. But they do make an interesting and unusual monster. The story has a good pace with plenty of danger and investigation. Kirk comes out as the best thinker of the bunch. And this story is made personal for him by his family being on Deneva. I was worried about all the red herrings, however. Well, not the investigation of the parasites per se, but in the storyline. Kirk's brother dies and gives him extra motivation to destroy the creatures, but the end of the episode seems to forget this, finishing on a much too light-hearted note. Similarly, Spock's blinding, while an excellent dramatic moment, serves no purpose. He need not have been blinded. The tests show that a minute after he's out of the tanning machine, he doesn't have to deal with his blindness for any real length of time, and then everything's neatly reset thanks to an inner island. So I do it, except as a cliffhanger before going to commercial. There's always a danger of giving Spock too many tricks, and in this case, it crosses over into Deus Ex Machina. I'm not panning the episode, though. It still generates interest, and the production values are relatively high. I like how the parasites are destroyed at the end. Great effect. And the location used, the TRW headquarters, looks convincing as a futuristic colony. Good idea to let William Shatner play the body of Kirk's dead brother. That's interesting. 
before I checked on that, I, I really did think, oh, wow, they look alike. Uh, the actors are good too. Spock twitching from the pain, Kirk grieving for his family and friend. That all works. So the, the real lesson here is that before blinding your first officer, why not wait the extra two minutes for the lab results? You know, next time. It's a medium for me. It's too bad either tragedy, the death of George Samuel Kirk and Spock's blindness, wasn't more central to the story, which is one of the letdowns of an otherwise well-crafted monster story. So to wrap up the first season before we go to break, it's such a strong season. It's full of iconic episodes. It's all, most people's favorites are in this season. It's even hard to believe that, you know, that I haven't already named uh, your favorite because that's, there's such quality uh, in this one. Not to say that other seasons don't have great episodes because they do, as we'll see. Now, one of the things that does start to, to wane from now on is the whole aspect of shipboard life and seeing some of the ancillary characters like Uhura, Sulu, and, and Soon Chekhov is about to join the crew. They don't get as much favor and screen time as uh, they used to from this point on, but sometimes will. So we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll tackle that second season. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations! Red alert! Shields up! What shields? You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will surely become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Freaks.com. We're back, and the second season starts with a mock time. Here we learn a lot about Vulcans and providing some great moments for Spock and some excellent dialogue and guest stars as well. But watch out for Chekhov's wig. Okay, the second season starts with one of the most memorable episodes ever, and it introduces a number of things. As far as the production goes, this is the first time DeForest Kelly gets his name in the opening credits. Uh, and the show really is about those three's friendship now. Kirk's loyalty to Spock is one of the best elements of the episode. Uh, and though McCoy and Spock have been at odds for a season, the Vulcan also brings him along as one of his closest friends. That means something. This is a theme that really will carry over into the rest of the show and the films. Also introduced for the first time is such iconic Vulcan elements as the hand sign. Live long, Tipao. And prosper the phrase as well. Vulcan itself is well realized, though we only see it, you know, an old ceremonial site. The idea that such a logical society would be ritualistic is interesting and adds depth to the culture. Ponfar makes its first appearance as well, again in contrast to the Vulcan logic we've come to know, and again adding depth to this alien race. There's a real effort to flesh out the Vulcans, and the speaking parts aren't pale copies of Spock. T'Pau has real presence, and T'Pring's final solution is marvelously logical. You can tell a writer of Theodore Sturgeon's caliber is at the helm when Spock utters the memorable 
After a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. The story starts out as a mystery, uh, you know, with Spock acting strangely, throwing soup around, but also showing tenderness to Nurse Chapel. It, it sparks enough interest that we don't have to get to Vulcan right away. Sulu and Chekhov get some humor out of the situation, which is fun. The young Russian is added to the cast with this episode and deserves mention. We don't see much out of him here except a thick accent and a terrible wig. Yeah, I wonder. That can't be regulation haircut. But his appearance shows a truly united Earth, despite what was going on politically when the show first aired. The scenes on Vulcan are the most memorable, with some nice twists and turns, and a fight that is better staged than most, accompanied by one of at least two new musical cues that will be back, the other being the eerie alien Spock theme. When Spock finally returns to the ship to find Kirk alive, his emotional outburst and immediate withdrawal back into his logical persona are beautifully handled, speaking volumes about the character. This is straight up a high rewatchability episode. We learn more about Vulcans in a single episode than in the entire preceding season, and as such, Amok Time is a model for any episode focusing on a single culture. Cat, that thing's a giant hand. up to episode 32 who mourns for Adonais. so by this point we can really start talking about uh, a formula for some of these episodes where it's you know each episode becomes sort of a combination of other episodes uh and over time star trek episodes well they just tend to go after the same theme so by a voyager's time most episodes seem uh, derivative of an older episode so this is really uh the squire of gothos plus space seed so the idea that Earth was visited by aliens in the past, seeding cultural and religious elements, isn't a new one, though usually we think of Aztecs and Egyptians when the subject is brought up. Here we have the Greek gods of Olympus as powerful aliens that thrive on worship. I'll buy it, and the episode's high production values really help sell it. Uh, the set is obviously indoors, but the swaying trees in the background create the illusion that we're outdoors. The shots of the giant Apollo, well done, uh, even if primitive by today's standards. The animated Thunderbolts, pretty cool, uh, as is the stunt work when Scotty gets zapped, for example, and the hand holding the Enterprise, that's an iconic moment. Chekhov makes a good impression in his first away mission, acting as a very competent, if over-enthusiastic, mini-Spock. The other secondary characters get some good, if brief, scenes back on the ship, especially Uhura. It's important to me that these characters not be left behind. If the episode is a letdown, it's the dialogue. It's all a bit flowery for me, with Apollo as the ultimate name-dropper. We get it. You know the gods personally, sure. In trying to convince us of his Olympian origins, the writer goes too far, although it helps make him a relic of the past. Even Kirk joins in with his hokey human flesh against human flesh speech. But I guess that's how you convince Lieutenant Palamas, uh, so charmed by Apollo's words that she falls in love with him. Star Trek nearly always misses with its love at first sight stories. Scotty's attentions are also a weak element. He seems too old and seasoned to be so reckless as to attack Apollo uh, that number of times over a girl. In fact, you know, the episode is rather sexist in his handling of Palamas. Um, it's, it's mentioned that once she gets married, she'll be out of the service, for example, that whole thing, and her betrayal of the crew is ill-advised. Her violation at the hands of Apollo could have been tasteless, of course, 
The original script apparently had her become pregnant as a result, hmm. uh, but leaves it at an embarrassing upskirt instead. It's a good thing she redeems herself, poignantly rejecting the god she loves. Apollo finally projects some pesos at the end of, as well, uh, bittersweetly marking the end of the Olympians. There is no room for gods. Forgive me, my old friends. Take me. So I set this one at medium. Great to look at, both for the effects and the beautiful Lieutenant Pilamus, but a little dull to listen to. Still, the plot stands up. It's space happy. It thinks I'm its mother. Ah, the changeling. Basically, Return of the Archons plus Charlie X. Okay, I'll admit a huge bias here. Nomad is one of my favorite Trek creations. I know he's a little silly, especially when, you know, drag along on that on that string. Uh, it's embarrassingly obvious in the DVD format. I can't imagine what it looks like in HD. Uh, but his look is credible, and his tone and dialogue are often repeated uh, in my house. Non sequitur is, in fact, a favorite expression of mine. Uh, it's all a bit kitsch, but Nomad is also pretty creepy, effectively working you know, as a monster. Uh, the Nomad cam, for example, that follows him around creates some eerie visuals, and the mind meld with Spock is chilling. There's also a lot of tension to be had when Nomad finds out his so-called creator is a biological unit. Kirk finally gets to interact for an extended period with a computer he will lock into a logic loop and destroy, making this a better story than similar episodes like Return of the Archons and A Taste of Armageddon. There's a relationship there. Where the episode goes wrong is in the humor. The creators probably figured that Nomad was a little bit silly, so they might as well give the episode a lighter touch. Maybe, but four billion people had just been massacred, a fact not respected at the end when Kirk and company are yucking it up. Uh, the indecent treatment of Uhura is also deplorable, even if it leads to a cute moment. I surmise that Nomad didn't really wipe her memory clean since she's re-educated in a number of weeks. Uh, she never loses her native tongue and seems to remember who everyone is, by the next episode at least. Uh, anything more would be greatly sadistic to the character. The weakest speech in the episode is the one where the title is plugged. I, I can't believe anything in the story could have made Kirk think of that legend of the Changeling, and it just seems like there was a need for explaining the title and or giving a little more weight to the episode by dropping in a literary cultural reference. Non sequitur. It, it all devolves into, it's space happy, which is among the worst dialogue written for Trek. So rewatchability is medium or high. Medium for you, high for me. Although there are great flaws in this story, I still love the character of Nomad and would watch this episode anytime I found it on. Uh, some, somebody obviously thought it was a good idea to repeat it in the motion picture. Alas, it wasn't. Mirror, mirror. Let's call it The Enemy Within Times 4 plus The City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, what's not to like? The Mirror Universe crew are deliciously skewed and, oh yeah, Uhura's abs. The fight scene at the end, again, disappoints. So sure, the premise is a silly one as far as hard science fiction goes, since there's no way that two parallel crews would be the same place at the same time given such drastically different attitudes and actions over the years. The two universes would have come further and farther apart as time went on. As an example, Mirror Spock has Vulcan henchmen, which are not on our Enterprise. A crewman killed by Nomad in the last episode is still alive in the Mirror Universe and so on. The main characters are just lucky to have the same jobs as their counterparts, I guess. But 
You don't think about that when you watch Mirror Mirror. It's just so much fun. Fish out of water stories work well in Star Trek, and here, instead of being in the past somewhere, they're in the present, but a much changed present, wherein they must try to fit in. It leads to equal parts drama and humor, none of it straining credulity. The actors who got to play mirror versions of themselves are having fun too, with Sulu's smarmy Scarface being especially memorable, though less so than the bearded Mr. Spock, who is quite close to our own. The four exchanges get the bulk of the action, however, uh, though Scotty and McCoy stand out less. You still get their usual competence and compassion, but Uhura is great here, especially in dealing with Sulu's advances. I can't believe they have her wavering in an early scene, because by the end, she's jumping Moreau for the phaser. Anytime's a good time. I'm afraid I changed my mind. You take a lot of chances, Lieutenant. So do you, mister. So do you. Without a doubt her best episode, and the cut of her uniform certainly helps. As for Kirk, he's his usual adaptable self. But I love how he plays logician with Spock in this episode. He's played these games with Landru and Nomad before, and here he shows why he can beat the Vulcan at chess. Great stuff. I also think Marlena Moreau is more than equal to the task of being the captain's woman, a very interesting and sensual character. Kirk is a bit shameless when walking up to her at the end of the episode, however, but that's where he got his reputation. If the episode lets us down anywhere, it's on the production side. For example, while flipping the Enterprise back and forth during the beam-in, that's an excellent device, but they didn't keep the outer space shots reversed. That's too bad. And then there's the horrible fight at the end where the stuntmen look nothing like the characters. Spock in particular grows curls and loses his beard in the wide shots. Can't believe so fragile a skull would have one knocked him out and two almost killed him. So right now, somewhere in the multiverse, there's a mirror ciscoid podcasting a negative review of this episode. It boggles the mind. So right away, you know where this is going. It's a high rewatchability. You can watch it for the story. You can watch it for the small details. You can watch it as a Hoohura fan. I'm just surprised it took until DS9 to revisit this universe. Uh, There's the novel Dark Mirror uh, for TNG that's an interesting take on it, if you like that sort of thing, so check it out. And for an alternate review, here's David Gallagher again. Carelessness with the equipment cannot be tolerated, a bearded Spock says as he torments another officer with an agonizer. That was the moment I knew that Mirror Mirror would be unlike any episode of Star Trek that I had ever seen and ever would see. Mirror Mirror created the original Darkest Timeline, a dark twisted parallel universe that had been parodied on everything from super friends to community it's infinitely clever ludicrous and pioneering now let's look at the apple if you like red shirts getting killed this is the one for you if you like original well-told stories this isn't the one for you okay once again kirk flies in the face of the prime directive and destroys a computer-run society and a happy one at that it's not that i don't agree with him but we've seen this a few times before and the apple isn't the best of these episodes it's not a good episode for kirk in general his self-doubt monologues coming off really as dull and affected not a good day for red shirts either the episode probably being the greatest contributor to that joke in the history of star trek It's just ridiculous that three men die from three different dangers, but Spock survives them all, including being hit by lightning. Jeez. Not a good episode for him either, mind you, although I did enjoy his fake argument with Chekhov. At least that little exchange was supposed to sound affected. The rest of the apple features pretty lame dialogue, constantly hammering on the theme of the Garden of Eden. We get it already. They keep mentioning it, but still feel the need to explain it again at the very end. Who wrote this? 
Christopher Nolan. And at the end, amusement is apparently supposed to, to be gained by comparing Spock to Satan. Ugh. Come on. Worse still is the whole conversation about the birds and the bees. 1960s television couldn't really discuss such matters, I guess. But though the scene tries to be cute, it's not funny and it's not in character. Kirk and Spock actually embarrassed to discuss this topic with other adults. I mean, if they don't know anything about... What I mean is, they don't seem to have any natural... Uh, how is it done? Mrs. Spock, you're the science officer. Why don't you explain it to the young lady? Well, I believe it's safe... <clears throat> safe to assume that they would receive the necessary instructions. Yeoman Landon is at least asked her opinion and then kicks some serious tail in the fight scene with the Valians. She should consider a transfer to security. She's better than those guys. Her relationship with Chekhov works fine, but they are a bit unprofessional about how they go about it. Other notes, uh, well, there's a sweet innocence in the people of Val that reminds one of the Blue Lagoon, and the jungle sets are expansive with fairly good effects. The crushing of the melon is quite violent in content and, you know, creepy as well. Scotty has some good scenes aboard the Enterprise. And if you listen carefully, there's the first mention of some kind of saucer separation. Tie every ounce of power the ship has with the impulse engines. Discard the warp drive and the cells if you have to and crack out of there with the main section, but get that ship out of there. The camera work is at times shaky, however, all in all, more boring than not. So, a low rewatchability, as far as I'm concerned. The reuse of the plot device, already seen a couple times, is unforgivable at the 35-episode mark. And the acting and characterization just aren't up to the usual standards. The Doomsday Weapon, a well-done space adventure that moves at a fast clip, and many of the effects are better than the episode's reputation. Okay, though the episode has a reputation for having ridiculous effects, mostly thanks to the look of the planet killer... It really isn't all that bad. I agree there are problems. Some cartoonish phaser hits, transparency issues with the planet killer, and the giant shuttle entering it. But for all that, we've never seen so much movement during a space battle, and the close-ups of both the wrecked constitution and the planet killer itself are pretty sweet. Aside from the technical elements, the episode wouldn't work without a strong performance from William Wyndham as Commodore Decker. That performance is uneven, sometimes over the top, but most of the time he either manages to exude the right amount of pathos, makes us hate him, or allows us to accept his final redemption. I especially like the games he plays with Spock, trying to put the Vulcan in his place and refusing his authority. The story is exciting enough, with the final beam out a classic cliffhanger. We know Kirk's gonna survive, but we gulp along with him. The episode is a good example of the meddling Commodore, or other authority figure cliche, but the best of its many versions. It's too bad we don't learn where the planet killer came from. Having only Kirk's theories to sustain us, the episode lacks closure because of that omission. So I give this one a medium, fun, and fast-paced, with some relatively good acting and effects. It's not perfect by any means, but it keeps our interest. I suggest you beam me aboard. Ten. Nine. Eight. Mr. Seven, Scott. Six. Fire now, Mr. Kyle. Five. Four.
And with a uh, second opinion, here's the irredeemable shag from our very network. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on the show, Cisco. I really appreciate it. Well, I guess I'm on every episode, technically, really. I'm in the opening credits. But, but thanks for actually having me on an episode proper, even though I was supposed to be on ages ago to talk about the new Frontier books. But whatever. We just won't. You know, put that out on Front Street, I suppose. We'll just put that on the back street. It'll happen eventually. I read five of the books. It better. So, yes, Star Trek The Doomsday Machine. Now, what did you call it exactly? Uh, I call it the Space Cigar of Death. (laughs) That's terrible. No, no, you've got it all wrong. It is not a Space Cigar. It is actually a Bugle, which is a snack food. If you guys have ever gone to the store and bought Bugles, you know what I'm talking about. If you hold one up and you've never thought about it, it looks exactly like the Doomsday Device. Yeah, right. Buggles. I'm sorry. What buggles? The video killed the radio star. Yeah, we call here that we call them buggles. I, I think it's just because we mispronounce words. I wonder if that's really so much a we or somewhat more of a ciscoid kind of problem. Well, but either. I, you know, I still say nuclear, so <laughs> we each have our problems. So Doomsday Machine is one of my favorites, dude. I love it because it's it's like a disaster movie because there's no. I mean, there is a malevolent force, I guess you could say, in the Doomsday Machine itself. However, it it doesn't think, it doesn't feel, it's not angry. It's it's more like a disaster. It's, it's more like you know, uh, a towering inferno kind of thing. You know, it's like there's a sense of urgency. How you can either survive it or stop it. It's like a force of nature. I I really enjoy this episode. There's some really great, powerful performances in it too. Lots of little things too. Like well, Matt Decker, like you know, he's he's kind of the big thing. His performance is just wow. They say there's no devil, Jim, but there is a... Right out of hell, I saw it! Matt, where's your crew? On the third planet. There is no third planet. Don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. They called me, they... Begged me for help. Four hundred of them. I could. I. I couldn't. <laughs> As he's going back and forth between, like, totally, you know, Ahab. You know, from uh, Moby Dick, he's got to get the whale. He, he's very, and then he, he'll he'll retreat back into this like very self tortured character. He's in a fugue state. He's like out of it. So, really interesting portrayal where he goes back and forth. So you've got you've got that story in there. The Moby Dick story is going on. Meanwhile, you've got the whole allegory for the threat of nuclear war. You know, um, supposedly the Doomsday Device was created as a deterrent. You know, is what they what they speculate. Well, isn't that exactly why we created atomic bombs? It's exactly the same idea. And, and then there's lots of like I don't know. There's lots of mythology building I really enjoy with this one. Like you get to see the constellation, which is the Enterprise's sister ship. You know, it looks exactly like it. I always thought that was so cool. Like when we watched Next Generation and we saw the Yamato, which was their sister ship. I was like, oh look, there's one just like it. I can't tell you why I like that so much, but I do. And also, Matt himself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got obviously in, this, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture his his son, and then uh, what? Honestly, I care more about is the Paramount Comics, which is published by Marvel. The Starfleet Academy series had one of uh, one of Matt Decker's uh, descendants. I don't remember exactly whether it was grandson or what, but it was part of the Starfleet Academy series. And I loved that comic. I really enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, they have a real dynasty going. And, and, and Matt Decker, but the father and son both have sort of the same fate. They sort of go up against this massive force of nature, both technological and yet living, and uh, get gobbled up by it. Yeah, quite literally, in both cases, yeah. And with with uh, <laughs> I was going to make a really bad joke about getting gobbled up by his girlfriend, but anyway. Um, 
yes, it, the, the Deckers do seem to be fated to to not end well. It's very sad. And uh, what else? Yeah, Kirk is great. I love the like when he's on the the damage ship and he's trying to figure out all the bells and whistles and trying to make it work. And he's got the little you know remote timer switch and he's going to fly that thing right into the ship and beam out at the last second. I mean, it's really intense and it it is sort of ridiculous that the captain is on the other ship all by himself, basically with you know Scotty and it's like really. But they explain it away in the story where the transporter goes out and it it all just happens to work that way and it's it's believable. And I didn't know this. This is you know, during my research. I found out that this episode was actually nominated for a Hugo Award in 1968 as Best Dramatic Presentation. Well, there you which go. Which says a lot about it. And also, uh, more mythology building in the expanded universe. Um, I, I love me some classic series novels. In fact, really where my, where my heart lands is usually in the, the movie era of the classic uh, generation character, you know, so around Star Trek, somewhere between Star Trek one and Star Trek five, there's like a great era of novels. But uh, one of the next generation novels I read that I actually enjoyed was by Peter David, and it was called Vendetta, and it had to do with the return of the Doomsday devices or Doomsday machines. And uh, I, it's been many years since I've read that book, but I seem to recall at the time it was just fantastic. I remember back then uh, Peter David was so well known for taking old pieces of continuity, weaving them with other pieces of continuity, and making it fascinating. So I, I really enjoyed that book at the time, and actually, I wonder if it'd be worth rereading. Hmm. I'm rereading some other Star Trek books, so I guess it couldn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, Vendetta was one of my the first Star Trek novels or Next Generation novels I read. So I agree, it it was epic. So I mean, that's that kind of sums it up. It's a great disaster movie, and I really enjoy the heck out of it, and I enjoy the performances. Thanks, Shag. And now that Shag's left, I just now remember what Vendetta, uh, the novel, was really about, and uh, it basically told us that the uh, Doomsday weapons were built to fight the Borg. So check that out at your uh, local used bookstore. Next up is Cat's Paw. We like it because Sylvia's voodoo on the Enterprise creates an iconic image, and Kirk's seduction of her works better than most such scenes. We might not like it because it very rarely manages to be scary, and the pink sets you know, are particularly bad. Let's look at it more closely. Cat's Paw was the first produced for the second season, but its air date was held until Halloween week. It explains Chekhov's really bad hair day. And is it the only Star Trek holiday special? I'm not sure it was such a good idea. Like many episodes before, it makes use of ready-made sets and props, horror-themed in this case, and once again justifies doing so by making most of the episode a grand illusion. Is that getting lame yet? Hmm. Well, there are some good spooky bits, such as uh, Jackson's standing fall and all the voodoo stuff using the tiny Enterprise. The rest of it, however, is far from terrifying. The gothic sets are painted in pinks, removing any atmosphere they might have otherwise generated. Likewise, the giant cat is disappointing, despite Spock's assertion that cats are the most terrifying of animals. There's just never a sense that the characters are ever in the same room with the creature. Other elements, like the three witches' almost incomprehensible chatter, are best forgotten. Stories of super powerful aliens, toying with the crew, they're all had by now, but the dynamics between Korob and Sylvia are unusual, especially Sylvia's reaction to her new senses and desires. Kirk sees this weakness in her and shamelessly exploits it, and because of her inexperience with such sensations, we believe it. A woman should have compassion, but I forget you're not a woman. But you're mistaken, Captain. I am a woman now. I come from a world without sensation, as you and I now know it. It excites me. I want more. The acting is up to snuff. The aliens' true forms are interesting, like tiny, feathered Cthulhu monsters, though the execution is a bit weak, with strings showing. 
Medium rewatchability. There are some good elements. There's a lot of padding as well. Slow moments and irrelevant scenes threaten to choke the life out of an already gimmicky story. Then there's I Mud. I like it because it's got good use of both uh, twins and split screens and the classic logic puzzle ending. I don't like it so much because it's basically a fluff piece. It looked like the actors had a lot of fun doing this episode, uh, possibly even improvising some of the weird shenanigans they have the androids witness, and that fun generally reaches us as well. It's kind of a weird idea to bring absurdist theater into Trek, but the basis for it makes sense within the context of the story, even if you have to suspend disbelief when the androids are stopped dead by a simple paradox. Some of it does veer into pantomime, but for the most part, it yields some memorable bits. Scotty's death, for example. I love those phaser sounds. He's dead. Harry Mudd is much more tolerable than I expected him to be, uh, as this is this is not a character I would have chosen to one day return. Sorry. And now he's set to be in Discovery? Anyway, some overacting still, but on the whole, he's more sympathetic because he shares the crew's dilemma. Kirk uh, gets to show off a sense of humor, and once again, his capacity to befuddle thinking machines. McCoy, Scotty, and Spock are all up to par. It's always fun to see the Vulcan do illogical things. Uhura's bit is a nice feint, but Chekhov is less interesting, basically relegated to dropping Russian references in. The androids work well, thanks to the judicious use of twins in addition to split screens. I quite admire the staging when it comes to keeping up that illusion. I do find their halting speech annoying, however, especially Norman's. On that basis alone, he should have been detected aboard the Enterprise. It's not like the stellar robot had that problem, so I, I'm not sure why that he has to talk like that. Speaking of which, that final punishment for Mud is a fun moment, but you see it coming as soon as he shows us Stella for the second time. That sort of padding is especially irritating when you consider that the episode ends pat with Kirk basically explaining that the androids are just going to let them go. It's all too easy. Similarly, we'll never know how Norman ever got assigned to the Enterprise in the first place. Maybe a pantomime song and dance could have been sacrificed to bring us these scenes? I give this one a medium, kind of like a bag of chips. It tastes good, but it's not very nutritious. Now on to Metamorphosis. It's a beautiful love story. By 21st century standards, Metamorphosis dips liberally into melodrama, but I don't think that detracts too much from enjoying the episode. Nor does the, the shrewish Commissioner Hedford coming off as a rather unpleasant, overreacting character. What we basically have here is a, a potable love story between man and alien, and, you know, sweet one at that. Sure, Kirk, in my opinion, jumps to conclusions when he first calls it love, but he turns out to be right. So, once communication with the companion is established, its lilting female voice convinces us that it, okay, she, cares for Cochrane. The man is the center of all things. I care for him. If I were human, there can be love. He reacts humanly enough, recoiling at first, but admitting later that you can't spend 150 years of your life with an entity and not feel something towards it. The father of Warp Drive is sympathetic in his first appearance, which helps us care about the love story. After all, this one is between two guest stars, so we're not as close to it as we would be if one of the main characters were involved. Hedford isn't as engaging a character, but we start to feel her pain 
as her last minutes approach. Then the companion joins with her. Her dialogue gets even more theatrical, but we do get a beautiful moment where she puts her scarf in front of her to see Cochrane as she used to. Also of note is the expansive planetary set with moving clouds and McCoy telling Kirk he should use a carrot instead of a stick. That's a nice moment that turns the episode on its head. Spock's reaction to being shocked is cool too, and another nice moment occurs when Kirk says farewell to Cochrane. The captain is obviously moved, choked up. These moments more than make up for the slower sections, uh, such as anything happening aboard the ship and the incessant effect shots as Cochrane calls on the companion. We learn that love knows no boundaries. Though it'd be nice if we both had physical bodies, wouldn't it? I give this one a high. I was surprised at how engaged I was by this episode and how well it worked, despite its obvious theatricality. It's also of great interest for fans of First Contact, wishing to compare the two Zephram Cochrans. Episode 40, Journey to Babel. I like it because of the scenes between Spock and his parents. They're excellent. And we meet more Federation members. Ooh, There's a lot going on in this episode. You have the political infighting between Federation members, the murder mystery, and the space battle. But at the core, there's Spock's relationship with his parents and Sarek's illness. Any of these elements might have made an episode interesting, and I'm glad having them all together doesn't create a mess, but rather a memorable story. Once we meet Sarek and Amanda, we start to understand why Spock acts as he does. The pressures of never being good enough for a Vulcan father's standards have pushed him to the Vulcan end of the scale. In Journey to Babel, he's more Vulcan than ever, constantly trying to prove himself to his father. Even Sarek indulges in a smile here and there, a man that has married a human woman who does love her. In his way, real Vulcans aren't as black as white as Spock would have us believe. It's all marvelously acted too, and it's a testament to that acting and writing that whenever we get back to the so-called A-plot about the murder engineered by the Orions, we can't wait to get back to the Vulcans. Not that these elements are badly done, even if the Orion spaceship almost doesn't qualify as a ship design. They stand up and are necessary to create Spock's dilemma. The action always supports that Vulcan story. Nothing is as important as your father's life. Can you imagine what my father would say if I were to agree, if I were to give up command of this vessel, jeopardize hundreds of lives, risk interplanetary war, all for the life of one person? Journey to Babel is also the show where Andorians and Tellarites make their first appearance, and we get to know a little more about the Federation's founding fathers. It's really too bad these races weren't featured more, and indeed not until Enterprise. I imagine that was because of the makeup effects, which were either terrible, like the Tellarites' pig masks, or very involved, like the Andorians. Still, their characterization was strong enough that the presented cultures remained pretty intact when they were finally used. Obviously, I give this a high, a tightly written story that creates very memorable characters, scenes, and alien species. It can be used as inspiration for countless more stories, and has. Okay, Friday's Child. Julie Newmar can slap my face any day. If you can't have physical aliens of any kind of regular basis, it's a good idea to create cultural aliens. The Capellans here fill that role well, uh, with an intriguing tribal society that it, that is a lot closer to the Klingon mindset than the Federations, and though I find their costumes horrendous, their taboos, honor code, and weapons are all interesting enough. And the premise isn't bad either, with the Klingons competing with the Federation for trade with a neutral planet. Unfortunately, the Klingons are a real letdown in this episode. Crass is hardly memorable, with his bald spot and lack of personality. We finally see a Klingon ship, and it's just a blurry light effect. That was okay for the Orions in Journey to Babel, but with recurring villains you know you will see again, how about chipping in for a model? Perhaps worse is that we never see the battle between the Enterprise 
Enterprise and the Klingon cruiser. In fact, the entire episode is messily edited, directed, and or written. The cruiser is is done away with off-screen, with barely a line explaining it when the cavalry shows up on the planet. There are other examples. Uh, Kirk is sentenced to death, but that seems forgotten when we come back from commercial. The makeshift bows are totally unrealistic as the efficient weapons presented. A captain's log informs us that uh, Eileen hates her unborn child instead of a scene doing so. Even Spock seems overly judgmental and irritated at McCoy's bedside manner, which is a little over the top for him, even if it leads to some amusing moments, especially over the baby's name. The child was named Leonard James Akaar. Has a kind of a ring to it, don't you think, James? Yes, I think it's a name destined to go down in galactic history, Leonard. What do you think, Spock? I think you're both going to be insufferably pleased with yourselves for at least a month. Sir... The episode's saving grace is Julie Newmar as Eileen. A strong screen presence, both spoiled and dignified. Her sparring with McCoy is fun, and you can, we can believe she would become the planet's leader. Overall, the episode is a good one for McCoy, who uses his knowledge of Capellan culture to his advantage throughout. He doesn't get as many chances to shine as Spock or Kirk, so that makes this episode worthy, despite its many flaws. So this is a medium. Julie Newmar saves the day because without her... The messy plot just doesn't bear rewatching, but she does. Next up, The Deadly Years. It's got good performances and surprisingly convincing makeup, uh, but the Romulans are essentially wasted here. So, okay, let's delve a little deeper. After the Forgotten Klingon episode, we get the Forgotten Romulan episode. Not hard to forget their participation in The Deadly Years, since it consists entirely of stock effects footage from Balance of Terror. There, a single ship was more than a match for the Enterprise. Here, some ten ships are unable to put much of a dent in our favorite starship. And Kirk just uses the Corbomite maneuver to get away at the end. I can't decide if that's a neat wink at continuity or an unimaginative last-minute deus ex machina. But that's not really the focus of this episode. Rather, it's the deterioration and rapid aging of the characters due to, insert technobabble here. It couldn't have been pulled off without good acting and makeup, so they are thankfully present. I've seen worse aging makeup in much more contemporary films and television. But a lot of it comes across through the acting. Kirk falling asleep in his chair is a particularly strong image. Despite their advancing years, I'm glad the affected party was still the one to figure out the cure. Even in a degenerate state, these guys are still top-of-the-line officers. Chekhov gets a couple of good moments, but the rest of the extended crew are more or less relegated to reaction shots. Unfortunately, there's a lot of padding here. The competency hearing recaps a lot of the information and seems a terrible idea when the t when you know when time is of the essence. The character of Janet Wallace seems a waste as well. She's there for no real reason except to give Kirk a good, if cruel, line about her being attracted to older men. You know, any lab assistant could have fulfilled her role in the plot. The character of Commodore Stalker is at least sympathetic, but still falls within the bounds of the incompetent commander cliché. So I call this a medium. Performances make this episode worth watching, but don't expect much from the Romulan plot or the special guest stars. Most fool's thing I've heard of. Competency hearing when there's work to be done. Obsession. I like it because it's got some very good scenes on the nature of guilt and command. On the whole, this is an interesting story with a cheap but still rather creepy monster, a 
space vampire, essentially, that returns from Kirk's past to haunt him. His guilt over his former captain's death, harsh words with the young ensign who makes the same mistake he did, conveniently the dead captain's own son, and subsequent obsession with killing the creature, all well played. It's not even really an obsession per se. The title is a willing accomplice in making us believe that Kirk has lost it, a la Decker, by the end, you realize that Kirk was quite aware of what could be done within the time frame allowed by the Yorktown's perishable drugs. Spock and McCoy's visit to their friend's quarters will be emulated many times when a commanding officer crosses certain lines and is a great military moment resolved without Kirk losing his cool. He doesn't need to. He's in the right. Oh, I take it, Doctor. Commander, that both of you, or either of you, consider me unfit or incapacitated Correctly phrased, Captain, as recommended in the manual. Our reply, also as recommended, is, Sir, we have noted in your recent behavior certain items which on the surface seem unusual. We respectfully ask permission to inquire further. Once the creature gets on the ship, however, the episode isn't so stellar. The only thing more ridiculous than the gaseous cloud getting aboard through some kind of outside vent, wouldn't the Enterprise lose atmosphere if it had one, is Spock trying to stop its coming in with his hands. I prefer to think he was attempting to maybe a mind meld there. Spock is saved by another inner eyelid, Deus Ex Machina, but this one uh, at least makes sense given his green blood. I never even thought he was in danger, though. Let's call this a medium. It's an uneven episode, oddly resolved, but with good acting and dialogue for the regulars. Wolf in the Fold. Genuinely creepy, but it tends to be sexist. Let's look at it. This is what Catspaw should have been like. This Robert Block script is at once better written, better interpreted. It comes off as a very adult story, too, with the boys starting out looking at exotic dancers and the ghost of Jack the Ripper starting a killing spree using Scotty's body or perhaps just clouding Scotty's mind. It's never actually cleared up. This time, the creators get the atmosphere right with the supernatural elements given science fiction reasoning without taking away from their creepiness. The seance, the timeless evil, all of that. The story does a good job of hiding the true culprit, though if you know who did it from having seen it again, that character's reactions are interesting to watch as well. Once aboard the ship, the questioning is pretty routine, but it gets more interesting when Red Jack is revealed. His possession of different bodies, sometimes dead bodies, is creepy and well-staged, possibly having influenced the Denzel Washington film Fallen, uh, that's what came to mind anyway, creepy, but not as creepy as Red Jack's process voice after taking over the Enterprise's computers. Red Jack! Red Jack! Red Jack! Red Jack! Red Jack! <laughs> if the episode has a flaw, it's its sexist attitudes. It's hard to tell a story about an immortal killer of women without that coming through, of course, and it's quite realistic, if unevolved, for sailors to come ashore looking for the sort of entertainment shown here. Comments like, uh, women are much more easily terrified, are less forgivable, however. Even so, Wolf in the Fall exudes genuine atmosphere, and even the secondary characters are satisfactorily drawn, give or take a couple of victims. So I guess we learned that it wasn't Prince Eddie or Sir William Gull after all. I give this a high. Robert Bloch's story has given Star Trek its first true horror story. Few have been as convincing over the years, if any. And now for an alternate review from Midnight the Podcasting Hour, my good friend Ryan Daly. You asked for a couple of minutes on my favorite episode of Star Trek the Original Series. That is not an easy episode to identify, not because there are so many episodes that I like, although that is true, but because I have not seen every episode. I know, it is awful, I feel like a fraud or worse, a dilettante. 
I could talk about one of the classics, something that has kind of permeated the public consciousness like Amok Time, or defined some trope in science fiction like The City on the Edge of Forever, but I thought I'd go with an episode that is a little quirkier, I think, and it's stuck in my mind because it's one of the last episodes that I've seen, and that is the Season 2 episode, Wolf in the Fold. Why do I love this episode? Because if I had never seen Star Trek before, never watched an episode of the show or one of the movies, and you told me that in Wolf in the Fold, the crew of the Enterprise has to fight the ghost of Jack the Ripper in space, I would assume that that is the point where the series jumped the shark. But it didn't. The show made it work in a kind of bizarre way that Star Trek makes things work. Getting into the specifics of why I enjoy this one so much, well, we open with a long shot of a belly dancer, which checks off one of my boxes, and before the teaser is over, we see Kirk and McCoy leaving what appears to be a pleasure harem and stepping out onto what appears to be a low-budget Victorian England setting with a fog-covered street. Suddenly, a scream pierces the night. Kirk and McCoy find a woman murdered and Scotty standing over the body with a bloody knife and no memory of what happened. All of that I love. And from there, the episode becomes a murder mystery for the first half hour, with Kirk in the slightly unusual role of detective. And what fascinates me about Kirk's part in this show is how... I won't say Spock-like, but he's very methodical in his defense of one of his crew, one of his friends... All of the evidence points to Scotty being the killer, and Kirk never says he'll prove his innocence at any cost. He simply goes through all the investigative steps, hoping that the process will clear Scotty's good name. And that same process leads to the total WTF moment when the killer is revealed to be a centuries-old malevolent entity that feeds on the emotion of fear. In the 19th century, this entity possessed a man who would become known as Jack the Ripper, preying on women because, as Spock says in his all-too-logical Vulcan way, women are more easily and strongly terrified. Yeah, and this is the show that is supposed to be the future that liberals want. Anyway, after they identify the real killer, the climax hinges on the entire crew getting high on anesthesia so that they don't fear the entity. And when Kirk and Spock trap it in a human host, they beam the guy out into space to die in the vacuum. And then everyone laughs because of the drugs! I mean, that's insane! This episode has everything that I like in other genre fiction. It's a murder mystery. It's a ghost story. There's philosophical and physiological discussions about emotions. There's belly dancing. There's Jack the Ripper. There's Sulu and McCoy acting like stoned teenagers. And there's the heroes executing a man who may only be an innocent victim possessed by a demon spirit. They just boot him out into space to die, and then they go down to pick up some chicks on shore leave. Is Wolf in the Fold the best Star Trek episode? No, it's utterly insane. But for that reason, it is one of my favorites. Because in spite of the craziness, it manages to embody what Star Trek is all about. It boldly went where no other show had gone before. The ghost of Jack the Ripper in space. Oh no, kill you all, die, make you suffer! And then there's the trouble with Tribbles. Hmm. Well, it's still pretty funny today, but sorry, Koloth is unconvincing and I don't buy Shatner's comedy performance. That's the brief. Here's the longer review. Let me start out by saying that I've always found The Trouble with Tribbles highly overrated. In large part because William Shatner is playing Kirk as constantly annoyed, 
He's annoyed at Barris, annoyed at the Tribbles, annoyed at his own crew, and that's from where the humor is supposed to be derived. To me, it just makes Kirk seem out of focus. He can't control his men, he doesn't understand the importance of Sherman's planet and the Quadro Triticali. Not that Koloth makes a very good impression as the Klingon captain either. He's much too thin to play a Klingon, and his postures are those of a dandy. Korax is more believable, thankfully, but the scenes with the Klingons lack any kind of tension because of the miscasting and consistent light-hearted atmosphere. I mean, the Klingons don't just dislike Tribbles, they're afraid of them. That's not good characterization. Otherwise, the episode works. The one-liners are fun without being over-the-top. The Tribbles are quite memorable. Cerno Jones and the bartender have good scenes together, etc. It all hums along at a nice pace, with the actors probably having more fun than their characters most of the time. Not a lot of effects on the whole, but the station is interesting. And seeing the Enterprise orbiting out the window is nice, too. The DS9 episode Trials and Tribulations revisits this episode and gives us more incentive to rewatch it than ever. But there's a lot of fun material that couldn't be used in the DS9 visit, obviously, and it deserves its own rewatching. Everything surrounding the bar brawl is particularly good, as Scotty acts as the voice of reason until he's, his beloved Enterprise is insulted. That sagging old rust bucket is designed like a garbage scow. Half the quadrant knows it. That's why they're learning to speak Klingonese. <laughs> Laddie, don't you think you should... Rephrase that. You're right. I should. I didn't mean to say that the Enterprise should be hauling garbage. I meant to say that it should be hauled away as garbage. The final solution to the infestation is a fun, if bit forced, moment as well, though Spock is uncharacteristically emotional in it. I'm going to give this a high. Even without the DS9 incentive, this remains a classic for good reason. I may not agree with the characterization of the two main characters, but I nonetheless enjoy this lighthearted adventure from start to finish. The Gamesters of Triskelion... On the one hand, it manages to achieve some kind of kitsch grandeur. On the other, it's so very hokey, from the plot to the costumes to the principal villains. Let's peer in. The show has always had trouble choreographing fights, so basing an entire episode on hand-to-hand fighting really wasn't a good idea. The arena looks kind of cool, but the fights are only slightly better than the norm, and all the action tends to be repetitive. It's hard to understand why the providers would praise Uhura and Chekhov, for example, when they do really poorly. Kirk may do better, but maybe it's the thralls that aren't all that great to begin with. The final fight is particularly badly choreographed, with the rules about the blue and yellow sections being ignored throughout. Just as repetitive as the action are all of the scenes aboard the Enterprise, which have Spock following a trail of technobabble as the other officers, guess what, don't respect his authority. Taken seriously, this episode would really fail, but somewhere along the line everyone started playing it for camp value. Kirk seduces a thrall who's never known love. And this, is this also helping? You could call it that. Please, help me once again.
Chekhov's drill thrall is a mannish alien woman in a pink slip. The preservers are silly glowing colored brains with a nonsense purpose behind their society. Galt seems pulled out of this season's Halloween special. The shameless training harnesses. Kirk is played way over the top, even strident, even in the usually well-handled direction. Check how the camera zooms in briefly when there's talk of mutiny. Now, now tell me they weren't going for high camp. There are redeeming values, such as the return of the Amok Time battle music, uh, and Kirk being once again a master psychologist, insofar as these characters have psychologies. His final gamble pays off, but it all falls on a silly extended battle. And Orion fans should know one appears here, but shouldn't run to their DVD players. It's not pretty. So this is a low for me. Almost made it to medium, but then I asked myself if I was ready for another viewing. And I'm really not. It's one for the drinking games, but not to show non-Trekkies to get them hooked. A hundred quart news on the newcomers. Next up, a piece of the action. It's pretty darn funny, but dumb away team tactics and the gangster accents start to grate on the nerves after a while. I admit to a certain fondness for this one. Yes, it, it's quite silly, but actually no sillier than parallel development as a concept. At least there's a reason for this culture being pulled from old earth, contamination, and a race of mimics. And the situation is played for comedy, with Kirk throwing himself into it and consequently having a lot of fun with the setting. His annoyance in the comedy of The Trouble with Tribbles annoyed me, but here he shows he's got a sense of humor and I like him better for it. This is a good episode for Kirk. He gets to drive a car, badly, uh, call his first officer Spocko, invent a new card game. The name of the game is called uh, Thisbin. Each player gets six cards, except for the dealer, uh, the player on the dealer's right, who... Uh, Get seven. The second card is turned up, except on Tuesday. Oh, look what you've got two jacks. you got a half Fisbin already. And show the Enterprise's power. His solution at the end is one of the greatest examples of his ignoring the Prime Directive, uh, despite his justifications. But it's an elegant solution, given what he had to work with. I think Mr. Shatner laid the accent and lingo on a bit thick by the end, and I freely admit that it gets kind of grating after a while. Spock's dialogue is all over the map as well. Despite the fun, it's not a perfect episode by any means, and I can see why a lot of people hate it. Though essentially a comedy, there's no excuse for the characters taking the situation so lightly. How else to explain the dumb way with which they get the bag put on them repeatedly, leaving their phasers up for grabs and possibly a communicator at the end? They don't use even one security guard, etc. It's a good thing the bad guys are stupid too, is what I'm saying, but it all weakens the story. Bonus points, however, for presenting what is possibly the only well-played child in TOS uh, in the street urchin that helps Kirk and Spock. So, a medium. Amusing setting and events, but it goes a little too far, as if any kind of tension would have ruined its comedic aspects. The Immunity Syndrome. Uh, it's got great interplay between the three stars, and Kirk has to make a Sophie's Choice, but it plays fast and loose with physics with no explanation of the giant cell forthcoming. I have a lot of reservations about this episode because it flies in the face of science. This is a lot closer to science fantasy, which is a lot less believable. A dark area where physics work in reverse outside the ship, but fairly normally inside it. A giant amoeba that literally comes out of nowhere. And an antimatter solution that is touted as logical, but is actually a leap of faith. If at least there were some kind of explanation offered for the creature, but there isn't. I prefer to believe that it came from another dimension, with the dark area being a rift in our space, but that, you know, that's just speculation. The real reason to watch the Immunity Syndrome is the performance and dialogue of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. In fact, 
the episode really just plods along until it's time to send a shuttle into the belly of the beast. Kirk has to choose between two friends as to which will be sent to his death. A well-executed moment? McCoy and Spock's rivalry is well used throughout, not only in their initial competition for the assignment, but later as well. During the rescue attempt, for example... Do not risk the ship further on my behalf. Shut up, Spock! We're rescuing you! Why, thank you, Captain McCoy. Or when McCoy tells Spock he botched some experiment or other at the end. Again, it's the tight friendship between these three that we want to follow. Uhura gets something professional to do here still, but you know that the new focus will sadly mean less to do for the other regulars. I'll give this one a medium. It's a bit slow and with an outlandish, unbelievable menace, but a good turn for the characters we watched the show for. A Private Little War is next. Uh, it's a pretty complex story with no right solutions, oh, and that Nona is positively smoking. Unfortunately, it's also the planet of the Frightwigs. So this episode has always been touted as relevant because it was a comment on the then-ongoing Vietnam War. That war has long been over, and though it has not been forgotten, we've sort of forgotten how this episode relates to that conflict. Without that layer of meaning, does it still work? The answer is yes, since it gives a story that's not black and white, where Kirk makes a decision many may not agree with. The original series more rarely navigates this gray area, and you really feel it when Kirk realizes his friend Tyree can now kill. More than Friday's Child, we often forget this episode features the Klingons. But they're here. Their presence cements their relationship to the USSR as, you know, in the Star Trek allegory, but it's just too bad there's no real sense of exactly why they're interfering with this culture. Another weak point is the design aspect of the episode. The entire planet seems populated by actors in really bad wigs. Chekhov's rejects, looks like. And there's nothing too distinctive about their clothes or homes. The Mugato is certainly memorable, but a pretty silly monster nonetheless. The exception here is Nona. Not only is she one of the sexiest women in all of Trek, she pops right off the screen. The male characters in the story are all subservient to her will, including Kirk and McCoy, who doesn't have her medical knowledge. She alone carries the Hill People's culture, which is otherwise presented as peaceful and more than a little dull. Her healing ritual freaked me out as a child, and her willful nature seduced me as an adult. Anytime she's on screen, her charisma draws you in. Another good moment is Spock getting slapped around in sickbay. Uh, though it has little to do with the story except to create suspense and show that Spock is more and more invincible, his self-healing is still a fun moment. I also like Dr. Mabenga catching Nurse Chapel holding Spock's hand. This guy needs more airtime. You mean he's conscious? Well, in a sense. He knows we're here and what we're saying. But he can't afford to take his mind from the tissue he's fighting to heal. I suppose he even knows you were holding his hand. I give this one a high. In many ways, a template for the resolution of my favorite Deep Space Nine episodes. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Episode 50, Return to Tomorrow. It's got a strong romance with plenty of twists and turns, but what does that title really mean? The forgettably titled Return to Tomorrow is one of the stronger possession stories Trek has told, in great part thanks to the acting of all involved. I caught myself thinking of Kirk as Sargon or Spock as Henoch. So different were their performances. Not broadly different, mind you. They were just right. We didn't really know Dr. Anne Mulhall before she became Thalassa, but Diana Muldor has the aristocratic bearing to pull off the latter character. I'd say Dr. Mulhall was fairly uninteresting by herself, but her embarrassment after the last kiss was really well acted. 
It's a grand love story spanning thousands of years, beautiful and tragic. The antagonists are a spurned lover, subtly played, and the temptations of the flesh. Sargon hints that their race might be responsible for our story of Adam and Eve, and that comment, while considered untrue by the characters, rings through the episode. As Eve Thalassa is corrupted by Satan Henoch as his nurse chapel, but Sargon is smarter than all of them, and the final twists and turns the story takes create a lot of tension. You don't realize what's really going on until it's all over, and it keeps you guessing and doesn't disappoint. If I had to quibble, it would have to be with the lighting effects used to show the possession of various characters. Well, simple and usually effective, in that final scene, what with all the body switching going on, you can practically see one light source turn off and the other on. But that's a very minor quibble, as otherwise the show is strongly written, directed, and acted. Who can forget Kirk's... Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Now I give this one a high. Having the main actors be the guest stars works to the script's advantage, and the mythic themes are are supported by an unpredictable plot. I'd forgotten how good this one was. Patterns of Force. Rolls at a good pace with plenty of action, this one, but strains the limits of believability and taste, i.e. it's the Nazi episode. The idea of interfering with a planet's culture using knowledge of our own equivalent period's history is an interesting one, but Patterns of Force strains credulity by making the historian John Gill much too successful at it. He recreates Nazi Germany on a warlike planet in order to civilize them and bring order to chaos. But with that structure, he recreates all the uniforms and regalia, the technology, the look of things from that period. And since Kirk reads off a manifest that the phasers have been taken somewhere, human language as well, English, not German it seems... Worst of all, he recreates, inadvertently, if we believe the show, the racist atmosphere that allows the Zeons to be victimized. I don't care what Kirk says about John Gill. He's not a good man. I I don't think you can recreate Nazism without the xenophobia. Nazism needs enemies and needs to think of itself as superior to something. On top of that, just the idea that the Federation scientists would use a whole culture as a laboratory for social experimentation that he would not only violate the Prime Directive, but also place himself in charge of an entire world, the man was as corrupt as he was foolish. I definitely question his choice of political systems to admire. Perhaps more distressing in all of this is that the Zeons are given Jewish-sounding names. Zeon, Zion, Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, which is totally unnecessary and a bit too close to home. The episode is extremely violent as well, all of which makes the attempts at humor more jarring. And at worst, tasteless. Sure, some moments work as set pieces, like uh, Spock on top of Kirk's back, though Spock is especially distracted and unprofessional in this episode, but most don't. Uh, There's way too much levity peppered throughout, not just at the end, which has become a bit usual. Your uniform, Captain. Yes, it's a shame yours isn't as attractive as mine. Gestapo, I believe. Quite correct. You should make a very convincing Nazi. Those things just make me cringe more than smile. If you're particularly sensitive to these issues, you may well be offended by patterns of force. After all, it turns Hitler's final solution into light entertainment. I'm only really offended by bad storytelling, to tell you the truth, and I have to admit that despite the many plot holes in this show's premise, it hums along at a good click, has plenty of action, and some good twists and turns. But just because you have a lot of Nazi uniforms in the costume warehouse doesn't mean you should plug them into your science fiction show. 
So this is a low or medium, uh, depending. I, I want to say low because of the inappropriate level of violence and tasteless way the subject matter has been approached. But it's a medium if you take the show for what it is and enjoy its action-adventure aspects. By any other name, it's the one where Scotty drinks a Kelvin under the table and, and there's a lot of fun stimulation besides. But on closer inspection, there's a lot of padding and some wide plot holes. Let's look at it. Because yes, there are some major plot holes in By Any Other Name. So let's look at those plot holes. Most central among which is that the Kelvins somehow think of Captain Kirk as essential personnel. There's also the fact that the Great Barrier, which is physically ludicrous to start with, doesn't give anyone ESP powers this time, so that's forgotten. And that Hanar allows an enemy doctor to give him mystery shots. The timeline is also fuzzy, with the drinking binge taking about as long as Hanar's three shots a day regimen. More distressing to me is that while our heroes are on the ball and that their plans consistently succeed, they quite often don't amount to anything. The dead ends do start to accumulate. Spock gets himself to sigbay to work on the power source problem, but it turns out it's impregnable. Scotty steals a belt zapper, but passes out before getting it to the others. Only a couple of examples, but they take up a sizable piece of the episode... So sometimes it's like they're showing us just how powerful the Kelvins are, but sometimes it just does feel like padding. Be that as it may, the episode creates a number of great moments and images that dispel any of my objections to it. Uh, Rojan and his people are more antagonists and villains, and certainly not cruel, even if they're tyrannical. Uh, having gone from their Lovecraftian forms to human ones is their ultimate downfall, having taken on all our weaknesses. Each temptation offered by the crew creates some interesting scenes. From the classic Scotty drinking binge... That's green. To Kirk's seduction of Kalinda with his apologies. To Spock playing the voice of Rojan's jealousy. Everything really centers on that love triangle, which makes Rojan finally realize that he can't go home again. I really love this exchange. You would really do that? You would extend welcome to invaders? No. But we would welcome friends. And I don't know if it's just the energy of the acting or some subtle makeup, but Rojan starts out a pasty white and takes on full human colors by the end. There's a lot of other things to like, including a small bit of continuity where Kirk mentions Aminiar 7 to put Spock's mind probe into context. Uh, you don't see a lot of that in the original series. There's the shocking crushing of a dehydrated woman into powder, and Kirk coming up on a corridor full of those containers. The Enterprise flying through the intergalactic void towards Andromeda is also a beautiful and memorable image. So this is a high for me. Strikes a good balance between suspense and humor with some sympathetic opponents you can embrace at the end. Thoroughly likable despite its flaws. The Omega Glory. This one starts out well with a spooky mystery and some good action, but it's a parallel history story gone too far. So yeah, it starts out well enough, with an eerie visit uh, to a ship where everyone's been crystallized. It remains interesting when the crew finds the ship's captain, the only survivor, and he's convinced he's found the secret to immortality. But it, it all seems a bit familiar. Be that as it may, the episode moves at a good pace with plenty of action and another engaging, mad performance by Morgan Woodward, this time as Captain Tracy. Spock's hypnosis skills are also of note and kind of creepy after he's been called the evil one. Unfortunately, it falls apart when it's revealed that the planet's history is a close parallel to our own. We're supposed to believe that a world with very different continents still bred a United States of America with the same flag, the same exact Pledge of Allegiance, the same Constitution, written in the same script, Yankees and Communists, and that this all happened way before us 
if it's true that some of the natives are over a thousand years old. Really, stretches the bounds of suspension of disbelief. They probably should have done it with a parallel universe or a time travel story or something, but here it's ridiculous. That what you call Eid Plebnista was not written for the chiefs or the kings or the warriors or the rich or the powerful, but for all the people. Down the centuries you have slurred the meaning out of the words we the people of the United States. I also don't think it's a good idea to draw too much attention to the Prime Directive at this point, since Kirk is technically as guilty as Tracy in that department, even if his changes might be considered good. How the Omegans will apply a document they read as gibberish is also an ill-answered question. And while I'm citing objections, how about the fact that this episode is so violent? Thousands of Omegans die off-screen, while on-screen, there's incessant fist-fighting. Some of it is pretty good by the series standards, but after a while, it's a bit tiring. Tracy disintegrates a man he could have stunned, attacks Kirk with an axe, uh, goes on and on. May I also point out this shoddy direction? There are way too many cheap video zooms that try to bring attention to certain scenes and events. They work alright, but they look terrible. Same goes for slowing down some footage, like Kirk's tied-up wrists. What, did he break the ropes too quickly? When on the ship, the scenes of empty rooms aboard the Exeter include one of engineering, where the crew is supposed to be. And I have to admit, the final patriotic shot and cue do nothing for me, being a foreigner, but I I don't want to start a political argument here. Let's just say I like Star Trek better when it isn't blatantly Americanocentric. So I'm sorry, I'm giving it a low. Not boring, I'll give it that, but by the end, I've grown so often, I couldn't possibly give it a good review. It just wasn't a good idea to start with. Next up is The Ultimate Computer. It features a memorable performance by William Marshall as Dr. Daystrom, and the regulars aren't bad either, but Kirk destroys a computer using words alone again. So sure, we've seen Kirk at odds with all powerful computers before. But there's the added layer of mechanization costing jobs in this one. Not that I believe for a second that a computer could eliminate the need for people to go into space. How is Daystrom proposing we handle landing parties, exactly? Or that Starfleet would see this as a good idea. It does give the regular cast a chance to muse or agonize on the subject, and they turn out some gems. Spock admires the computer's efficiency but has no desire to serve under one. McCoy reminds Kirk that you never see anything wrong about machines taking another man's job, uh, because that's progress, but when it comes to yours, that's different. And Kirk questions his life path as Captain Dunsell. They're all well-played moments. William Marshall is a good guest star as well, teetering between megalomania and a persecution complex as the famous Dr. Daystrom. His conversations with the M5 are powerful and edgy, and he probably does the best neck-pinch take in the entire original series. The M5 basically sits there and doesn't have much personality, certainly not as much as its creator, but its disintegration of a hapless ensign is rather shocking, and its final reasoning about murder is relentless. Must you survive by murder? This unit cannot murder. Why? Murder is contrary to the laws of man and God. But you have murdered. What is the penalty for murder? Death. And how will you pay for your acts of murder? This unit must The episode may not be on the level of the Dominion War effect shots, uh, but for the first time we get more than two ships on screen together. It's fun to see more of the fleet, even if the body count gets a bit high as a result. Of course, 
all's well that ends well, and the regulars are back to yucking it up by episode's close. I don't much like the levity after hundreds of people have died, and besides, those scenes were mostly padding to explain how Kirk knew this or that, as if we couldn't understand it just from watching the show. So, not a great note to end on. It's a medium for me, except for the final scene and the nth retread of the Kirk versus computer scenario, I'd watch it for the character development and the creepy guest stars. Plural. Daystrom, of course, but not Commodore Wesley, but the M5. Bread and Circuses, which for some reason I thought was in the third season, uh, it's got a great exchange between Spock and McCoy in the jail cell about Spock being more afraid of living than dying. Remember that one? But it's another parallel development story. It seems very familiar at this point. I understand the practical reason for parallel history development stories, but they're a little shameless when not in some kind of actual parallel universe context. These what-if tales are extremely bizarre when you think about it. That said, Bread and Circuses is probably the best of the lot, and it stands to gain from any comparison to the very similar The Omega Glory, which even had a corrupt ship captain coming ashore. On the one hand, you have the 20th century Roman culture that uses television to broadcast gladiatorial games, but still has slaves, decadence, etc., It's at least interesting, and Kirk compares much more favorably with a Roman than with a Nazi, as was done earlier. I've never been keen on television commenting on television, but one wonders how similar 60s TV was to the violence of the arena, or if it was just a good prediction on the writer's part. The culture's values are more interesting to explore, and there's a real sting to the proconsul dismissing the lesser Captain Merrick to talk about things only a man would care about. That all makes Merrick's betrayal more believable. Was he looking for a way out all along? It's possible as well. The other reason why the episode works is because of the character development. Spock and McCoy are in particularly good form, as McCoy goes a little too far in his psychoanalysis of Spock and backpedals from it. Great moments between the two, both in jail and on the arena floor. Liberal, why you're not afraid to die, Spock? You're more afraid of living. Day you stay alive is just one more day you might slip and let your human half peek out. That's it, isn't it? And security. Really, Doctor? Kirk is again the able psychologist himself, and he paints himself as the perfect Roman to gain Claudius Marcus's respect. Great line about being thrown some curves as well. And up on the ship, not only does Uhura get some face time, but Scotty shows himself quite competent too, as he disrupts the city's power grid. Now, that's the kind of thinking Starfleet officers should always exhibit. And what about the worshippers of the sun? Do I find that element controversial or otherwise in bad taste? Not really. It's a rare mention of a Terran religion in Star Trek. Uh, but I don't think it's offensively done at all. It certainly has more merit than the Omega Glory's duplicated U.S. Constitution, and the homonym keeps it from being a plot point throughout the episode. It's a clever reveal at the end that brings the point across for those who hadn't come to that realization on their own. To my surprise, I give this a high. If you're only going to watch one parallel history episode, make it this one. It's worth the price of admission for the famous Spock-McCoy exchange alone, but the rest of the story holds up quite well. Season finale time, we get Assignment Earth. Well, I like it for the charming Terry Gar as Miss Lincoln, but is it even Star Trek? Who do you think you are? So they didn't manage to sell a pilot for an Assignment Earth series, so they just fiddled around with the script to fit it into the Star Trek format. And that's just what it looks like. A story from another series into which our favorite characters make an appearance. Kirk, Spock, and the rest are basically 
bystanders in this one, only managing to delay the real hero of the story with their meddling. This wouldn't be so bad if we didn't know Gary Seven's motives were pure, but we do, and I do so hate to know more than the characters in this case. There are things to like. Uh, Terry Garr gives a fun performance as the clueless but intelligent Roberta. Robert Lansing is cool and intense as Gary Seven. The cat is well-trained, and being a cat person, I enjoy watching these animals on screen. There's a lot of production value added by NASA footage of the rocket going to space, and the assignment Earth premise isn't uninteresting. It's got lots of neat gadgets uh, that seem to have inspired such movies as Men in Black. In fact, it might even have been a cool show. Maybe. Of course, there are problems even with those things. Roberta can annoy as much as Charm, for example. And though I love cats, this one strains even my patience with the incessant meowing. I know American short hairs are vocal, but this is ridiculous. And the unnecessary complication of revealing Isis shape-changing into a woman at the end? Well, it's fluff. And disturbing fluff while we're at it, considering Gary Seven's treatment of the animal. NASA looks good, except for an atrociously cheap still photograph that keeps coming up. I also have misgivings about the alternate history shown here, really splitting off from actual events, not in the faraway 90s like the eugenics wars, but in the current 1968. It's weird. The initial idea of having the Enterprise go back in time for historical research also doesn't work, not fitting the concept of the show, and Kirk's final assessment that Seven's gang would have many adventures is overly optimistic, as we never hear from these characters again, except in books or comics. Overall, it's a bad way to end the possibly last season of your show, which this might very well have been. So, really, it's a low, truly inconsequential. It might as well have happened out of the canon. It can be fun at times, but it's just another show, plain and simple, with the Star Trek characters sticking out like sore, useless thumbs. And that's the second season. Not as strong as the first, we still get some very iconic and memorable episodes, but no total turkeys. We'll take another short break and come back with the third and final season of Star Trek, the original series. Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer. Or maybe we should call them Flight Ringers. Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes. in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. So the third season. Obviously, I'm taping this on a different day. My voice is a little harsher because I've had a cold, which is perhaps thematically consistent with the ailing third and final season. And I don't know what it says about this season, that it starts with Spock's brain, uh, which does achieve a kind of kitsch grandeur, but uh, what is this, guest director Ed Wood? As the episode starts, you get a sense that the creators are showing off some pretty sweet optical effects, which gets you all warm inside at the prospect of an all-new season. A new model ship, not fuzzy lights, or he's too far away for a visual, and you see Kirk walk in front of the view screen for the first time. I guess they used rear projection. Uh, the icy planet is also one of the better realized worlds as seen from orbit. But as soon as the terrible title 
Spock's brain comes up on screen. It, it's all downhill. The dialogue is extra cheesy, making sure to mention that title as often as possible, with the iMorg's childish blather being especially frustrating. Uh, plot holes abound, and suspension of disbelief becomes harder and harder to maintain between turning Spock into a robot zombie that can still be made to grab a woman and press specific buttons from a simple remote control, and the removal and restoration of his brain, without so much as a scar, there's plenty to groan about. When he gets up from the table and starts droning on and on, though it provides the final joke, that's just not Spock. He's never been that talkative. Either McCoy reconnected him wrong, or bad writing is to blame. And what's with that weird operation montage, with the cross-fading between all the faces mugging at the camera? That's right out of Ed Wood or The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Sure, you can enjoy it as a piece of high camp. Uh, I was often reminded of certain episodes of the Batman television show uh, and lines like, You are a disembodied brain. Fascinating. Do amuse me. But a script that has the most popular character turned into a zombie isn't very smart. And so that the other actors don't feel left out of the humiliation, they get some large green navels strapped on. Terrible. So obviously, low rewatchability, my memories had it at a personal medium, but rewatching it, though I was never bored, it's just terribly written, directed, edited, designed, and, and yes, acted. The regulars try their best, but a few cool opticals or lines can't save this material. It gets better. The Enterprise incident is next. It's a tight spy thriller, uh, has a glorious return of the Romulans, excellent dialogue. So in a sense, this would have been a much better season opener than Spock's brain. Uh, on the other hand, I find it very odd that the Klingon's ship model appears for the first time, lent out to the Romulans. What is this? In production order, the battlecruiser makes its appearance in Elan of Troyes under the Klingon flag. But in airing order, the Romulans show it off first. That's just bad planning. And a little off when we've already seen the Romulan bird of prey and balance of terror. Where's that ship? That said, the episode doesn't hit many other bad notes. Uh, the Enterprise Incident, a title with a Romulan perspective, is a good thriller that keeps you guessing, with Kirk and Spock knowing far more than we do, and engineering an entire charade as much for our benefit as for the Romulans. Of course, we know Kirk hasn't gone insane and wasn't really killed, but it's interesting that they allow even the Enterprise crew to believe these things, apparently for weeks, and that's what I call deniability. There's real tension in the music and the model shots, and the plot works well. Kirk makes an impressive Romulan in the first of what will become a tradition in Star Trek, putting your regulars in alien makeup. The crown jewel of the episode, though, is the relationship between Spock and the Romulan commander. Their many scenes are engagingly written, and you're, you're never quite sure who's seducing who. Spock is restrained, quietly emotional. Uh, his betrayal hurts him as much as it does her. The commander is as strong a woman as we've seen on the show, and though more middle-aged than most, quite sensual and passionate. She's almost ahead of our heroes every step of the way. The Romulans were never as good as they were on the original series. Starfleet, for its part, wears more of a gray hat in this one, and is all the better for the complexity. I love the line about how fleeting military secrets are. You realize that very soon we will learn to penetrate the cloaking device you stole. Obviously. Military secrets are the most fleeting of all. I hope that you and I exchanged something more permanent. From Spock's brain's low to this one's high rewatchability. The best episode of a very flawed third season with memorable characters and scenes filled with tension and beauty. 
Too bad the rest of the year couldn't go in that direction. The Paradise Syndrome. A fair tragedy with high production values, even if Shatner goes a little over the top with... can't argue that's not fun. There seems to be a lot of money on screen in The Paradise Syndrome, from the beautiful location shooting, not at Vasquez Rocks for once, uh, to the Riverside Village, to the huge built monolith. And for all that, the episode leaves me cold anytime we find ourselves on the planet. Maybe it's because of the annoying looping and all the outdoor scenes. Maybe it's because Kirk isn't himself. Always be careful of what you take away from a character in these cases. Shatner Goes over the top way too much between the screaming at the end and the self-hugging when he's happy. I don't quite buy the whole Tahiti syndrome thing for Kirk, even with amnesia. I'm also turned off by the natives here being played by white folks. Must be because we have a lot of native actors here in Canada. I know it was another time in Hollywood, but with the ethnic variety on the Enterprise, did they have to resort to the old Western tradition of using white actors here? A minor point, perhaps, but... Add some stilted dialogue and you have a recipe for boredom. Now, sure, there's a good tragedy in the making, with Miramani doomed, not because of the asteroid, but because she can't possibly end up with Kirk at the end. You might think it's a brave move to kill off a pregnant woman, but it would have been braver to allow her to live and bear Kirk's child. As is, it's kind of cruel to the character. Not that she had much personality, mind you, but Kirk didn't so much fall in love with her as he did with Edith Keeler, but was given her because of his status as a god. Another missed opportunity, there might have been something to be done with the god who bleeds stuff. But that's pretty much forgotten after Salish attacks Kirk, only returning at the end as a means to dispatch Miramani. The best part of the episode, truth be told, is the subplot about deviating the asteroid. The dramatic tension goes up a notch every time we return to it, usually beautifully edited with Kirok and Miramani frolicking in the woods with all the time in the world. The Enterprise backing away for two months was a chilling idea and well presented with Spock never sleeping a single wink. And all of that shipboard stuff is well played. And the tonal musical solution is interesting and a neat piece of canon about Vulcan. The preservers are likewise a nice idea, one that they should have hit on a lot earlier because the explanations for parallel development, you know, are getting strained at this point. This is a medium. Great production values make the episode, you know, nice to look at with a sweet, if a little dull, love story. The asteroid subplot is well handled and more watchable uh, since the main plot creates a less than engaging character in Kirok. Unpopular opinion? You tell me in the comments. Episode 60. Ugh. And the children shall lead. This one commits the worst possible crime for an episode of Star Trek. It's woefully boring. Uh, the story starts off badly with the planet set looking cheaper and more artificial than usual. And from there, it doesn't get much better. There's just so much fish shaking I can take before turning the television off. Uh, the kids here sometimes give off an effective Village of the Damned vibe, but not always. And their leader, the Gorgon, is boring with a capital B. Because of the special effects, the actor couldn't move around. I understand that, but his dialogue delivery becomes nothing more than a drone to me, a repetitive drone. I do think that some of the moments work well. For example, when they beam personnel into space thinking they're still in orbit around Triacus. That's pretty chilling. Uh, when the children force the adults to confront their greatest fears, there are also some interesting character moments. Uhura's fear of aging is particularly notable after last season's immortality scare in I Mud. Uh, Scotty's love of his instruments is well played, and though Chekhov's reliance on order is a bit obvious, it is effective as well. Sulu's funky space knives are fun, but 
you know, on the ridiculous side. No more so, however, than Kirk's overperformance of his fear of losing command. Not a stellar scene for Shatner. Unfortunately, once the episode has made a point, it makes that point again and again and again. We return over and over again to the Space Knives illusion, to Uhura's aged reflection, to Tommy's pounding his fist. The episode could probably have lasted 30 minutes without all that padding. Same for the repetition of the nursery rhyme and much of the Gorgon's dialogue, when he wasn't just blathering on as I fought to keep my eyes open. And though it doesn't end on too light a note, by the series standards, McCoy's final scene where he's happy to see children cry just smacked of rushed writing. Low rewatchability, dull, dull, dull. It's really sad when what little development the secondary characters will get this season comes from this story. Moving on to Is There in Truth No Beauty, which is an at times beautiful morality play, uh, although more science fantasy than science fiction. Star Trek is often at its best when it's a morality play, but in many ways this episode is more of a fable. Uh, though it tried to keep me engaged with lots of twists and turns, I was annoyed by all the magical elements. We start off with an alien who's so ugly seeing him drives you mad. How can that be? There's also a human being with powerful telepathic powers, which, which passes with the crew without much surprise. And finally, a third version of the Great Barrier, this one creating disorientation and bringing you to a rather busy void in a space-time continuum. The original series was never so full of technobabble. The episode redeems itself in the last couple acts, especially in Kolos's speech about how he perceives humanoid existence. It's actually moving. Kirk again plays psychologist. I'm still amazed at how much you know, reviewing the entire series brings this facet to the fore, uh, in a scene that reminds me of Hamlet confronting his mother. With my words, I'll make you hear such ugliness that Spock saw when he looked at Collis with his naked eyes. The ugliness is within you. It's a lie! Roddenberry once described Kirk as coming partly from Hamlet, and we see it here, even more so when he doubts himself with McCoy after the exchange with Dr. Jones. If he dies how do i know that i didn't kill him how do i know that she can stand to hear the truth in fact the whole episode is rather well written when it comes to dialogue and character only letting us down on matters of plot and continuity the direction shows some flair in how it handles the point of view of the characters driven mad by the sight of kolos though fails in its portrayal of miranda's psychic visions why does she ask all those questions if what she sees is kolos's box a lot of praise also goes to the always regal Diana Muldoor in the role of Miranda Jones. Well played, whether you know the character is blind or not. And finally, I must say the episode has one of the best titles in Star Trek. I give it a high. Though it's far from perfect, it's won me over with great acting, good character moments, and excellent dialogue. Just don't inspect the plot too closely. Spectre of the Gun you know, I'm not sure Star Trek should have ever done a Western. On the one hand, Westerns were such a staple of 60s television that it was more than a little obvious. Secondly, Trek was based on a Western formula, so you don't really need the Western tropes added on. The Prisoner once did a Western episode that worked a lot better because it was so incongruous and unusual. Here, after seeing Space Romans, Space Nazis, and Space Indians, it's nothing special and only serves to highlight the fact that the creators are raiding set and costume warehouses for their alien environments. The twist, of course, is that it's all happening in their minds, though this is unevenly realized in the plot and acting. When they return to the ship, for example, there should be shock and surprise, but it's all handled too matter-of-factly. The whole reason for going to see the Melkotians against their wishes is glossed over in the worst way, and I, 
I don't know who's stiffer, the immobile Melkot puppet or the acting from the four Earps. Not only are the Earps played like the bad guys, which is strange, but they're really little more than robots. Menacing, sure, but kind of boring too. And yet the episode did keep my interest. There are enough twists and turns to keep the viewer engaged, and plenty of obstacles for the characters to overcome. It's one giant puzzle. I admit to jumping when the crew first runs into a force field. So yeah, I was interested. Turns out the Milkotians were interested in finding out if humanity had overcome its history of violence. Somewhat of a retread of Arena, but it works okay. Of course, why does Kirk care if figments of his imagination are murdered? He only does for the sake of the plot. The surreal sets could have looked cheap, but they're used effectively. Uh, the fight at the Oki Corral is the real set piece here, with the crew all lined up, the fence getting shot apart behind them, and a zen tranquility inhabiting them. It's eerie and really effective. I'd recommend the journey just to get to that point. So, I'll give it a medium. I wouldn't want to see this sort of stuff too often, since they tend to feature wooden stereotypes as characters, but Spectre of the Gun creates an interesting mood and definitely has its moments. But here's our second favorite supermate, Chris Franklin, with a different point of view. Uh, favorite Star Trek episode? Well, why don't you just ask me to, you know, pick a favorite kid or something? Um, you know, I could go with the obvious ones. Actually, my favorite episode is City on the Edge of Forever. It really is. It was that before I knew it was supposed to be the be-all, end-all of our all Star Trek episodes. But I'm not going to go there because that's way too obvious. But if there was one that's kind of a favorite of mine that's that's kind of on the periphery of ones that people tend to talk about. It's probably Spectre of the Gun. I know the place to get the profit drugs. Now, I know that's derivative of Arena and, you know, the Savage Curtain that'll come in Season 3 as well. But I'm a sucker for Westerns. I'm a sucker for the story of Tombstone and the OK Corral and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. I'm your huckleberry. So you combine Star Trek with that, and it's just one of my favorites. And, you know, they actually like slid into the cut budget in that episode by having the western town be, you know, half built as figments of their their memories and what they thought the west was like. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, the fact that the clock is floating in nowhere, I mean, that really looks cool, the red sky and everything. It's just fantastic visually. If for nothing else that last sequence where Spock mind melds with everyone and convinces them the bullets aren't real. And you see the Earps and Doc Holliday unload into the Enterprise crew with their guns. And you just see the, the fence behind them just riddled with bullets as it explodes. And it's going straight through them. That's good special effects. It's simple, but damn, that's effective. And yeah, like I said, it's derivative of Arena. It's even got pretty much the same ending but I don't care. I love that episode. So that's one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. Now for Day of the Dove, where the Klingons make a comeback, and they're much more defined here than they were in Errand of Mercy. I love John Colicos as Kor, but Michael Ansara is more the warrior and less the slimy bureaucrat. The extras are also better realized, and though Klingon women are a far cry from what we'll know later, Mara still comes off as having a head on her shoulders. I dare say the Klingons of the future will be based on Kang much more than Kor and Koloth. He has massive presence, gets a number of Klingon sayings in, and manages to give us cues about his culture simply in the way he carries himself. He writes off his own wife as a casualty of war, does the honorable thing at the end, uh, but not without slapping Kirk hard in the back, but a nice touch, not without slapping Kirk hard in the back. And he might have won without the alien's interference too, a worthy antagonist. Other elements are less inspiring. The alien presence that feeds on violence isn't unlike Red Jack, 
but it has far less personality. Uh, it gets into your head and changes your memories and attitudes, so it's a wonder the crew was able to beat it at all. If it can turn McCoy and Spock to violence, these two characters specifically, I can't see how Kirk or a Klingon could have broken its hold. There are other weaknesses, such as the abrupt ending, which still has the characters antagonistic, so why does the alien weaken, really? Chekhov's assault on Mara is a well-played moment, but I find it a little disturbing. Uh, you might give the scene to a guest star, but to a junior member of the cast, even if he's not responsible, it's still a character we're supposed to like doing this. A very adult scene, to be sure, and a little jarring when compared to the rest of the rather more demure original series. I'll give it a medium, a great episode for the Klingons that makes a comment on the futility of war, but it is marred by huge plot holes, an unengaging villain, and some rather disturbing behavior on the part of the regulars. But for an alternate review, here's Film & Water's Rob Kelly. Airing on November 1st, 1968, Day of the Dove is the seventh episode of Star Trek's third season. It was written by Jerome Bixby and directed by Marvin J. Chomsky, brother of Gnome. Now, of course, I didn't see it back then. I watched it, along with all the other original Treks, as reruns in the 1970s, as so many kids of my generation did. During a period when my mom worked on weekends, my dad and I would watch Trek on Saturdays and have pizza. Unlike my mom, who had and has no time for such foolishness, my dad could enjoy science fiction, and it was appointment viewing for us in those long-ago pre-remote control days. I understand that Day of the Dove is not considered among Die Hard Trekkers to be a particularly good episode, but it's always been one of my favorites. Even after memories of other individual episodes have come and gone, I distinctly remember sitting in my family's home in Philadelphia as this episode unspooled. The idea of a nameless, faceless, malevolent alien life form whose sole goal seems to be pitting people against each other to the death remains to me one of Trek's creepiest adversaries. To my memory, it's the closest we ever got to what a Star Trek ghost story might be like. This shimmering ball of light can swoosh around the hall of the Enterprise and float through walls at will. It also changes people's dispositions, as we see when Scotty, McCoy, and especially Chekhov start acting like they voted for Trump. Michael and Sarah gives a great performance as Kang, the head of the Klingons that find themselves entangled with Kirk and crew. Susan Howard is Mara, the show's first female Klingon, and there's a wonderful moment in the show where she finds herself Kirk's prisoner. After Kirk's bluff about killing Mara doesn't work, she is sure she's about to die, except... You're not going... The Federation doesn't kill or mistreat its prisoners. You've been listening to propaganda fables. The idea of a whole race being brainwashed, thanks to propaganda, seems more relevant now than ever. If only we could solve things by laughing our troubles away once the real enemy of us all is exposed for what it is. Surprise, surprise, a Star Trek-watching comic book fan wasn't the most physically demonstrative kid in the world. So the notion in this episode that you can solve even the most dire problems just by pausing, taking a breath, and thinking held great appeal to me when I first saw the episode. And, 30 years later, it still does. Next, McCoy finally gets some love and action in For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. This episode has a terribly beautiful title, uh, though I I'm a little disappointed they plugged it in the dialogue itself. It just didn't ring true when they said it. And that's the major problem with For the World. It has trouble with truth. You know, DeForest Kelly is quite believable as a lonely man who has only a year to live. He's a good and likable actor, so that part of it works. Great emotional center to it all. And it's possible that the people of Yonada have a culture that makes it quite possible to ask a man in marriage within minutes of their first exchange. The problem is possibly that for the world, 
is a little too theatrical for its own good. The old man who has touched the sky, for example, is right out of Greek tragedy, and Yonadin language is poetic to the point of being stilted. It's like they tried to make the story grandiose, but didn't quite manage it. The, the ending has Natira sending McCoy away as easily as she invited him in, for no important reason. It's like, oh, it's the end of the episode, I guess that's that. Will McCoy stay here to die? No. McCoy will not let go of life in the fullness of years. Another sore point with me is the effects shot of the Enterprise in the asteroid. It's a reuse of the rock from Paradise Syndrome. It's been superimposed on the film or something. It looks really bad. The slow motion on the ship it sure doesn't help. But I don't want to sound too negative about the story either, since it does work. The love story is a little odd and awkward, but you can believe and understand McCoy in this. The look of the temple and language, as well as the fun moving sets, are all quite good. And the dilemmas are interesting ones, trying to balance the prime directive and the fate of two worlds, as well as McCoy's plot-driven illness. Big reset button at the end? But at least Kirk lets us believe McCoy and Natira did see each other again. Again, a medium. Yes, Kirk destroys another computer-driven society, but at least the focus is on something else this time. It's a good McCoy story with likable performances, but suffers from various contrivances. Episode 65, The Tholian Web. At the core of The Tholian Web, there's a story of loyalty and friendship, and that's what you have to look out for, since the plot is a lot of rubbish. Might as well get the negatives out of the way first. So the story has too many elements that just don't come together to be a true classic, even though the episode is well-remembered. Consider, we have an area of space that gobbles up spaceships, acts as a dimensional doorway, makes a crew go insane, and may or may not be the doing of a totally cool but underexploited new enemy called the Tholians. Oh yeah, and throw in a ghost story for good measure. Now, the Tholians are cool, but judging from events during the episode, their web has nothing to do with the Defiant's disappearance. So they're just a convenient opponent to trap the Enterprise in that region of space. It's too bad. Being so alien, they could never be fully exploited in the original series, but that small taste has endeared them to Trekkies everywhere. As for the rest of the plot, the writer just threw in too much, and none of it can be properly explained. The amount of technobabble is off the charts by the original series standards. I also have to mention the supposedly cute moment where Scotty trots off with the cure to mix it with scotch falls flat and is inappropriate for the situation. Now for the good. I've already mentioned the Tholians, but points also go to the designers of the spacesuit. These look pretty good. Seeing Uhura and Civis in her quarters highlighted the fact that there hasn't been much character development for the secondary characters recently, except maybe for Scotty. Glad to see some of that creep back into the show. The real point of the episode is the death of Kirk. What would happen if Kirk died, even if we know full well he hasn't? McCoy and Spock are naturally deadlocked, and when they hear Kirk's final orders, they must start to work together. Holmes, Spock, since you are playing this tape, we will assume that I am dead. And the tactical situation is critical, and both of you are locked in mortal combat. It's well played overall, but I really appreciate how understated Spock is. The guy can't really emote, yet there's a defeated sadness about him. I'm sorry. I understand, Doctor. I'm sure the captain would simply have said, forget it, Bones. And then there's a funeral where he basically leaves grief up to each person. A man of few words, as they say. 
The core of the original series can be said to be friendship and loyalty, values that will be used fully in the movies later, and the Tholian web exemplifies this admirably. So I'm forced to give it a medium. If the story wasn't such a mess, it'd be rated high. But as is, I can only recommend it for the character moments. But hey, that's what keeps me coming back to the Star Trek experience anyway. And now the historically important Plato's stepchildren. It all starts out well enough with a distress call from the long-lived Platonians, who all have, but for one exception, a powerful psychokinetic power. Now, I don't really buy the whole story of these aliens having spent time on Earth during the Greek Golden Age, and it's glossed over pretty quickly. Like The crew should have been more surprised, for example. Worse, it doesn't figure all that much into the story, as this could have been any utopia. But if that's the setup, then that's the setup. We don't know that they're dangerous at first, though we do get clues early on, and Parman's delirium is a well-executed telekinetic storm. It goes a bit wrong in the first extended show of power from Parman. A long, long humiliation of both Kirk and Spock. It's not that it's hard to watch, it's that it's tedious, and you can't wait for the next commercial break. By having the characters recite something out of Lewis Carroll, it's also inconsistent in how it presents the power, unless the Platonians have kept up with Earth literature since leaving it. Points do go to William Shatner for bearing to have someone do a jig that close to his face. And even when it's over, it's not quite over. Parman has Uhura and Chapel beamed down for round two. This time it's not as bad, though don't ask me to judge Leonard Nimoy's singing. Take care, young ladies, and value your wine. Be watchful of young men in their velvet prime. Deeply they'll swallow from your finest kegs. Then swiftly be gone, leaving bitter dregs. It provides character moments for all five present and is historically important for the first interracial kiss shown on television, though it's through gritted teeth, uh, but they had to slip it by somehow. At the end, it turns sadistic, which I find far less appropriate for TV than any two people kissing, but it's halted by Kirk finally exhibiting the power. And then it's all over. Hey, Parman, don't do this again or we'll come back for you. Okay, okay, and they leave. A very abrupt ending, with no real justice exacted on the bad guys. The power just disappears after being so easy to manufacture. All the humiliation does serve a purpose, even if I think it could have been edited a bit more tightly. First, it provides fuel for an excellent scene where Spock admits to deep hatred, which he then must try to control. Second, it helps us feel more sympathy for Alexander, who is a most impressive guest star here. He injects real pathos into the story and allows the idic philosophy inherent in Star Trek to be put into action. Again, a medium, the season is taking an unfortunate turn into science fantasy as opposed to science fiction, and there's a lot of padding here just to see our characters jump through hoops, or for the actors to show off their miming, dancing, and singing skills, which all lets down an otherwise interesting story about the corruption of power with solid guest stars and at least one sympathetic character. Wink of an Eye. This is another foray into science fantasy, since the premise doesn't really hold up. Even Dila waves a hand over it. I really like Phil Ferrand's conservative numbers in The Nitpicker's Guide that reveal that to beat persistence of vision, dodge phasers, etc., the crew of the Enterprise would have had between 30 seconds and 4 minutes to do everything we see them do. So the acceleration isn't consistent or believable. How could they not be detected in transport, for example, 
Let's just sweep that under the table and enjoy the story, okay? It's an interesting little ship invasion story in an unusual environment. Kirk has to deal with a world frozen in time. The Batman-style Dutch angles is an excellent directorial choice to express the surreal nature of this place between seconds. Unfortunately, the villains of the piece are a letdown. I've never seen such a bunch of effete, uncharismatic bad guys. Dila has to be one of the dullest of Kirk's leading ladies, despite being slightly unhinged. And yet it's one of the few he sleeps with, as evidenced in the infamous putting his boots back on scene. Rail has even less of a character. Their plan is intriguing, and you do feel sympathy for them when they leave the ship. A doomed lot. But the way they are dispatched leaves something to be desired. Kirk and Spock had a cure. Wasn't it applicable to the Scalosians? I guess they died by the time the ship had left orbit. So who cares, right? And if the flame that burns twice as bright lasts half as long, is that a metaphor for the original series as a whole? A medium. A silly premise that can be taken seriously, but that leads to, to some enjoyable stuff. Don't care much for the guest stars, but the cast does quite all right for itself. I found it an accelerating experience. Now, the empath. When I think of the empath, what comes to mind first is the black sets, or rather the absence of sets. Just props plopped in the middle of the black studio floor. So it was with surprise that I find myself quite enjoying this episode. Not at first, of course, since Jem's first moments and over-the-top mime are overtly theatrical, reminding us as well that this is all fakery. The similarities to The Cage were also not lost on me, though here, Kirk and crew are Vina to Jem's Pike. Does that make sense? What won me over was the portrayal of the three friends, each not only able but willing to give his life for the others. They're even ready to make the ultimate sacrifice so that their friend doesn't have to choose between them. This is a theme that returns again and again in the original series, culminating in the the good of the one, the good of the many of the films. I don't really care that much about Jim as a character, but seeing the trio exemplify this theme throughout the episode actually brought a lump to my throat at times. In particular, during McCoy's death throes, when the depth of friendship between Spock and McCoy is revealed. You've got a good bedside manner, Spock. The director of the episode drives the theme home by showing Jem in what I find to be a style reminiscent of The Passion of Joan of Arc, a French silent film that spent a lot of time on close-ups of Joan's tortured face. It's effective in making the mute expressive, and Catherine Hayes does a good job. For their part, the Vians are interesting antagonists because they aren't really villains. They're just, they've just become misguided a little. Once again, Kirk shines by pushing the right psychological buttons. Unfortunate that the final scene takes me right out of the episode, with Scotty telling a story about a merchant and a pearl. I don't know what that has to do with anything, and not since Kirk's changeling speech in The Changeling has something sounded so incongruous and writerly. The core of the episode can withstand its bad parts, however. So, a high. To my surprise, I found the empath engaging and worthy. It's a hard thing to pull off after the number of Aliens Play Games with the crew episodes we've seen to date, but credit must go to the show's stars who by now know their characters quite well and the originality of a mute guest star. Otherwise, it would just be a low-budget effort that would make even this Doctor Who fan cringe. On to Elan of Troyes. There are Klingons in this, but the return of the Klingons is overshadowed by the Star Trek version of The Taming of the Shrew. But who's taming who? Franz Nguyen is a powerful on-screen presence as Ilan, all the more interesting because of her exotic looks and accent. Didn't realize I was getting sick of all the blonde alien beauties until the creators injected a little variety into it. It's really too bad the other Elasians are so cookie-cutter and unlike Ilan. 
None of the guest stars make a good showing except for her, though Petri is okay if a little ridiculous looking. The Klingons are basically just an FX shot here. Uh, though their strategies are interesting and the space battles fairly tense, their presence is made dull by the lack of any named leader here, and the thrill of finally seeing their ships has been sapped by the airing of the Enterprise incident and its three Romulan bot cruisers first. But though a logical enemy, I understand the need to keep the focus on Ilan. She's the true antagonist of this piece. Though slightly derivative of the shrewish Julie Newmar character in Friday's Child, including a similar face-slapping moment, she's allowed to go further by making Captain Kirk fall in love with her. It's not manipulation for manipulation's sake, however, she really does choose Kirk with respect to her culture. Whether she sees the good captain's strengths, he's got his own brand of irresistibility after all, or is acting desperately because of her arranged marriage is up to the viewer. As a spoiled child, she's annoying, but entertainingly so. Thankfully, we see another side of her, more vulnerable and human later on. Ironically, by that time, Kirk has been subdued by her tears. There are no easy solutions for her as she beams down to be married against her will in the interests of a treaty, and by the end, she comes off as sympathetic. We should understand her anger. That's all you men of other world can speak of. Duty and responsibility. Less of Spock and McCoy in this one. But that gives Scotty and Uhura something to do, which was appreciated. I'm less enamored of the final coda, where Spock contends that the Enterprise is cure enough for Elysian tears. If the director had lingered more on some kind of haunted look on the captain's face, maybe it would have worked. As it is, it's kind of a tiny reset button. Let's chalk it up to Spock not understanding emotion very well. Giving this one a medium, humor, romance, drama, suspense, action, it's all there, and fairly well done too. If I only give it a medium, it's that the plot itself comes off as derivative and serendipitous. The fortuitous dilithium necklace, for example. I'm also quite aware that spoiled Ilan may not be to everyone's tastes. Episode 70, Whom Gods Destroy. Wow. I wasn't really expecting it to be this boring and pointless. Whom Gods Destroy has some money on the screen, but not much of anything in the script. The toxic atmosphere of the planet, for example, well-realized, and the split-screen effects are well-executed, too. In fact, one non-Trekkie watching it with me, laughing at the effects, dialogue, and, you know, Garth mostly, makeup, sets, and costumes the whole way, still let out a, how'd they do that, though? during Kirk's fight with himself. I have to admit, it looked pretty seamless, especially on a show known for its obvious stand-ins. Otherwise, however, the episode is a complete mess. None of the inmates are especially interesting, except maybe Marta, and the plot device of Garth having learned to shapeshift is science fantasy hogwash. Does it make even the least bit of sense? The various tricks to make the captain answer his chess riddle password are interesting, but I've got to wonder why this is the first time there's ever been a required password, especially with visual communications added. It just looks like Kirk had read the, the script beforehand. I question the wisdom of a story where Spock and McCoy, at the very least, are mostly off-screen. The guest stars aren't really engaging enough to replace them. Over the top and not very good at all, though Kirk comes out as a fair psychologist once again. And then there's the direction and editing. Madmen partaking in various shenanigans is dreadfully pointless and boring, and Marta's dance goes on forever. Worse still, we come back from the opening sequence with Spock unconscious. I get that he's been stunned, but having it happen off-screen? Just, that's just jarring. And due to Leonard Nimoy's pressure, apparently, Spock isn't knocked out by a blow to the head in the final battle, yet the dialogue makes mention of it anyway. That's dull and annoying. Here's a famous clip. I'm your captain, Spock. Can't you tell? Shoot! Shoot! 
must shoot both of us. It's the only way to ensure the safety of the Enterprise. I give it a low. How can it be so colorful and yet so dull? Well, the plot is on autopilot, the guest stars are boring, and the editing was botched. Avoid it. Let that be your last battlefield. Reevaluating all the episodes can sometimes be disappointing. Let that be your last battlefield was well remembered, but though it still has a lot of qualities, the season's penchant for science fantasy tries to ruin it. In science fantasy, things happen by magic without the need of actual scientific justification. In this episode, for example, Beale flies an invisible ship, cheap, that disappears upon delivering him to the Enterprise. He's able to command the ship with his mind and make it fly at warp 10, different scale than later explained, I hope. He and Loki are tens of thousands of years old and have skin pigmentation that defies standard biology. In a sense, this is the series' most overt morality play. We're in fable land, pure and simple, and things just happen so they can teach us about the absurdity of racism. Though well acted, it's a bit heavy-handed. There are references to slavery, the civil rights movement, Vietnam, and creationism versus evolutionism. When Beale explains the difference between the two races, it's a good moment, and the makeup is very dramatic and effective. Are you blind? Oh, look at me. Look at me. Black on one side and white on the other. I am black on the right side. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. The direction for its part is uneven. The auto-destruct sequence played just on eyes and mouths is very tense. I just wish Kirk had more reason to blow up the ship. The final chase to Sharon looks silly, though the crossfades to burning cities makes it more emotional. And I don't know if they were going for a homage to... Frank Gorshin, Beale's role as the Riddler on Batman with the red alert zoom-in, zoom-out camera action, but it's simply ridiculous and out of place. Finally, though the premise, acting, and makeup all work quite well, as does the resigned and downbeat ending, this is a story where things happen just to drive the morality play forward. Aside from the things already mentioned, there's the fact Kirk knows Sharon is in an uncharted part of space, so how does he know about it? Uh, that he can easily return from there at episode's end, that despite their long lifespans, Beale can't wait even a minute to get back there, that Spock can listen in on a conversation through a crack in the door, that the crew has heard about prejudice in the 20th century, but have no experience with it in their own lives, conveniently forgetting some of the comments made about Spock over the years, among others, that the destruct sequence gives Kirk a sizable extension after the five-second mark, etc., etc. Th these contrivances weaken the episode sizably. I'm giving it a medium. Could easily have been a high, but the emotional impact is softened by obvious speechifying and pulpit-thumping, as well as too many contrived elements in the script. But for an alternate point of view, let's have a chat with First Strike, the Invasion Podcast's Bass. Uh, yeah, because my dad's the real Trekkie, and uh, this episode kind of... Uh, kind of touched me in the right way when I was younger, uh, because let that be your last battlefield is one of those. I don't know if it if it was well reviewed when it came out, but it's a very obvious uh, show where you have uh, these aliens that have half the face that is black and the other half which is white, and they have this huge racial thing. But the only thing different is that you know the the opposite sides are black or white on the other person and i mean this episode starts off i mean in the enterprise is just running on you know being good at what they do they're going to help this planet uh, arianus 
and they have a contamination or, you know, they have this virus or bacterial thing and they're going to help. And they see this stolen shuttle and inside there is this alien with half the face that is white and the other half that is uh, black. And uh, the doctor is like, oh, this is this is just a, another alien. Never really saw it. My impression of Bones is horrible. Yes. But, you know, it's just an, it's an alien. I've never seen it before. But, you know. And then Spock goes, well, you know, you've been treating him. How can you? And, well, blood is blood, you Vulcan freak. You know, I can treat him. I put some more oxygen in him. And he's fine. And he's recuperating. And, you know, people are people. You dumb Vulcan. <laughs> And because they love each other, right? So, and and this is basically the basis for everything. The people is people thing. And then we see, we, we hear that this shuttle was stolen and, you know, and he's going to be prosecuted or at least heard on some Starbase. And then the other guy comes along, which is played by Frank Gershon, which is great because he's the Riddler. And uh, he's named Beale, Commissioner Beale. And uh, he's basically a cop space cop and they've been running after each other for thousands of years and it's over the top and it's kind of kitschy and he and, and and the thing is that these aliens they have this power they're technopaths they can control technology with their brains but not computers only only like i guess mechanical technologies so they basically or <laughs> frank gershon he takes control of the uh, the enterprise and then Kirk does this great dramatic thing where if you're not going to give me control, I'm going to blow it up. And this is just at the halfway point of the episode. It's not even like the grand finale. They have, they have this all this big, you know, dramatic thing where you know everybody's sweating and you only see eyes and you know you see at one point you only see Scotty's mouth saying his protocol, his, his you know his codes, activation codes for the self destruct and everything. It's it's very intense and. uh Basically, well, they don't blow up the Enterprise. Well, you know, it's halfway point, so it's not really a, you know. But they have this discussion about race. And uh, it's very on the nose. And it's very half preachy. and But, you know, it's it's one of those things that I saw it when I was younger. 12, 13 years old. And it kind of hit exactly on the nose. You know, you, you, you see all these things. And I'm, I'm from this little place, right? And you see all these people being, you know, uh, racist and everything. But we're all basically the same people. At the end, they're the only two survivors of their race. And they're going to basically kill each other on their home planet who has no more, you know, no more people. And no it's, happy ending. It's it's not a happy ending. Does it have an obvious message? Yes. Is it a necessary message? I think yes also. Absolutely. Is it overdramatic? Well, of course, it's all over drama. Uh, is it kitschy? Well, damn straight it's kitschy because, you know, it's the 60s. And, 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 but I did love it 100% because this episode to me is basically everything that's wrong, but also everything that's right with Star Trek. Sometimes you just have to get that message through using aliens. We were raised by Star Trek. We were. Another contrived and unconvincing plot, The Mark of Gideon. The third season continues its steady journey through parable territory with this one. This time we're tackling overpopulation, but a little more bravely, I thought, pro-choice, pro-life issues and contraception. Uh, the episode creates some striking images with both words and pictures. I particularly like the people just outside the council chamber struggling to get by. Interesting nondescript costumes, too. The romance between Kirk and Odona manages to be kind of sweet, and Hoden's desperation is well played. I also like Spock's impatience with diplomats, revealing some repressed feelings about his father, perhaps? The episode might have been stronger without us seeing the Enterprise's side of things, however. The mystery would have been deepened 
we know too much. And besides, as the bureaucrats waste Spock's time, they're also wasting ours. The first half of the episode is quite slow, though the second moves at a much better pace. In the end, while the plight of the Gideons is tangible, their plot, and the episodes, isn't logical. How do they build a replica of the Enterprise that would fool Kirk when they aren't even Federation members? If all they needed was the virus, why not throw Kirk in a cell and save the space? How did they expect Kirk to stick around once Odona was dead, no matter how in love with her he was? Why hasn't the population died from food depletion? It all boils down to magic again, since we must believe a magical people that never die but keep breeding on a planet that is basically a mass of living flesh. A nice image for a fairy tale or poem, but the Mark of Gideon never explains how that could really happen. I think Gideon is a planet ripe for rebellion. What with that handful of counselors hogging all the extra space in the best clothes, you know? So, a medium, a far-fetched premise that sinks an otherwise competent story. There are some things to like here, but it's slow going at times. Perhaps you could then make greater effort to choose your words more precisely. That which survives isn't one of the worst episodes in the canon, but it manages to continually annoy me. What it has going for it, it moves at a good clip with a fair amount of action and even suspense. Uh, Scotty and Sulu get some stuff to do, and they do it well. Uh, glad to see Dr. Mbenga again as well. And Lozira's transport effect, where she becomes a, a line, then a dot, uh, like some old television screen shutting off, is original and cool. What it has going against it is plenty. First, though they try to justify Lozira's feats with advanced technology, it veers pretty easily into the magical. Consider, she's able to teleport the Enterprise almost a thousand light years away, still project herself to it, and then make it fly out of control at a record warp 14.1. The projections can only kill a specific person at a time, but conveniently, she knows the entire crew manifest and seems to read minds. She's also able to make a phaser overload. Her people can make planets. So how did these super beings become extinct anyway? I think it may be appropriate that Lazar is wearing a genie outfit. I am for you. Most distressing, however, are the attitudes of Kirk and Spock during the episode. Why are they so grumpy? Kirk snapping at Sulu a couple times is totally unwarranted, and Spock, geez, Spock, is more alien in this episode than ever, and for once, they're not doing the mutiny bit. All of a sudden, he takes every idiom literally, dresses down everyone who makes any comment at all, or doesn't take each number to three decimal places, and even admonishes Uhura for asking for odds. Like, he's never calculated them before. These aren't the characters we love. It's I'm about as impatient with Spock as he is with the crew in this one. And there are other bits I find annoying. For example, the planet set seems more fake than usual. Is it me, or do we see the rock's shadows on the sky during the bouncy earthquake scene? And Kirk is suspiciously less amorous than usual as a beautiful woman comes towards him with a death touch, but he doesn't know that. I set rewatchability at low. It's a fair adventure, but I wish the main characters would lighten up. And Star Trek continues its steady decline in quality. Oh god, the lights of Zetar. There are so many things wrong with this episode that I don't even know where to start. The science fantasy continues to roll on with what is basically a ghost or possession story. The scientific trappings don't fool me one bit. The people of Zetar survived only because the script said they did. Lieutenant Romaine could be possessed instead of killed for that reason too, and the pressure chamber kills the aliens again because it's scripted that way. Might as well be a supernatural, magical explanation. It's very boring. I don't begrudge Scotty what little romance he can get, but... It's so sickly sweet that I almost broke out the insulin. And I'm not diabetic. Sweet, and quite boring too, with no real dimension to the relationship. Mira Romaine is never heard from again, so you have to wonder what happened to her. I think the real mistake made by the Lights of Zetar is not possessing a regular character. Drop the love as remedy angle and put someone we know and care about in jeopardy. 
but I'm not sure it would have helped. The episode veers into the grotesque with its creepy depiction of a dying woman. It's not creepy in a good way either. The mouth movements look ridiculous and ugly. I also don't understand why Romaine is so often referred to as the girl. Annoying and condescending. Not a big fan of the forced laughter at the end either. Lowest of the low. This one should be exercised from every collection. Devoid even of the campiness that permeates some of the other substandard episodes. Episode 75, Requiem for Methuselah. Now, Requiem for Methuselah has some severe problems, not the least of which is that there is no explanation for why a human being from antiquity would be immortal, or how some of the greatest figures of history could really be the same man, even if the core of that story works. Flint is an immortal who has grown so lonely that he wishes to create an equally immortal android to keep him company. James Daly plays Flint's plight believably and with assurance, and Reyna is a compelling young woman as well. It is therefore too bad that the episode was so badly written. Its main problem is that there's no reason for Kirk to fall so deeply in love with Reyna. None. The entire crew is dying from a plague, and he's that preoccupied with a girl? Don't forget that the episode takes place in the span of only a couple of hours, if McCoy's deadline is to be believed. And he seems to forget about that too at times. Kirk is so distraught over the loss of this two-hour-long love that Spock makes him forget his pain with a telepathic touch. This would have been a good and sensitive moment after Ilan of Troyes, for example, but here it's wasted. I don't even see why Kirk would be taken with Reyna when the first words out of her mouth are technobabble meant for Mr. Spock. All this passion for a physical connection? The whole thing is dreadful. Overplayed. Out of character. Spock isn't much more than a chorus in this episode, suddenly quite the expert on emotions. He's even poetic about affairs of love, and an expert on art, on music, anything the script needs him to comment on, in fact. Why he has to explain the plot, even to Flint, at the end, is a mystery. And then there's the pat resolution, as related by McCoy, who does get a good speech about Spock never knowing love here. You wouldn't understand that, would you, Spock? You see, I feel sorrier for you than I do for him. Because you'll never know the things that love can drive a man to. The ecstasies, the miseries, the broken rules, the desperate chances, the glorious failures, the glorious victories. All of these things you'll never know, simply because the word love isn't written into your book. Yeah, turns out Flint isn't immortal anymore and he's gonna play nice. I hate being told things instead of being shown them. There are other problems... Uh, the magical way in which Flint turns the Enterprise into an advert for a model kit. Wasn't it enough that he was immortal, super strong, and super intelligent? Uh, the shaky camera work, the dull and overlong dancing scene. But, you know, that's all par for the course, it seems, in the series' final death throws. Still give it a medium. Watch it for Flint and Reyna and their story. Try to ignore Captain Kirk's out-of-character behavior if you can. This one's pretty much on autopilot. And now for your dose of Space Hippies, The Way to Eden. <laughs> Looking for the good land, going astray. Don't cry, don't cry. Oh, I can't have honey, and I can't have cream. Shining all around me and say I'm here 
To my surprise, The Way to Eden isn't quite deserving of its bad reputation. The idea of space hippies is goofy, and they do break out into song way too often. But if you're in the mood, the tunes aren't bad, and the story comes off as a bit of fun. And despite the fun, the episode still has a serious aspect to it. Like the best morality plays, The Way to Eden plays on a few ironies. Dr. Severin has been given a disease by the sterile technological environment, which would make him the instrument of the destruction of any natural world he so desperately wants to visit. The Eden they find is beautiful, but poisonous. The latter is strictly Twilight Zone fare, but the former holds some interest. The episode certainly explores some gray areas, telling us that Star Trek's utopia has created other problems, and that everyone isn't happy with it. I especially appreciated the crew of the Enterprise representing the establishment here. They would normally have been the heavies in such a story, but because we like them already, we're more prone to see both sides. Chekhov gets some nice character development in the scenes with the red-hot Irini Galiulin, and we can see why he was painted as Spock's protege early on. Of course, the way to Eden is quite dated in its portrayal of Severin's movement. It really has little to do with any kind of 1960s civil rights movement, as they are more than a little criminal and even violent in their methods, maybe closer to extreme environmentalists. But they look and sound like hippie stereotypes. The episode is well-padded with folk songs, which I don't mind that much. But it's the hippie lingo that makes me reach for the fast-forward button. Uh, with flowers painted on their heads, instruments in their hands, and participating in various forms of demonstration, they're too close to the real thing for the show not to be commenting on the movement, but I'm never sure on what side of the issue the production is. On a final note, the Romulan neutral zone is a bit of a waste here. Too bad we couldn't cut a song or two just to see the Romulans one more time. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Long time back when the galaxy was new Man found out what he had to do Found he had to eat and he found he had to drink And a long time later he found he had to think oh, Yes, think I'm standing here wondering. What? If a man tells another man out of my way, he piles up trouble for himself all day. But all kinds of trouble come to an end when a man tells another man, be my friend. Uh -huh. Well, what's it going to be? So yeah, medium. I mean, face it, the entire original series is dated by effects, attitudes, and hairstyles, you know. This is no different. But The Way to Eden has some of the most memorable moments in the third season and is a lot more solid than usually credited. The Cloudminders. This one has everything required to be a Star Trek classic. It takes a 20th century issue and puts it through the 23rd century filter to discuss it more openly. It's got alien environments, a planet in danger, Kirk breaking the prime directive in the, na in the name of individual freedoms, a couple of saucy gals, and a cave set. It's unfortunate that it still manages to miss the mark. There are still a lot of well-realized elements, not the least of which is Stratos 
a city that features a large number of art pieces. The costumes are good too. The drug lights look like red versions of the Mole Man from Marvel Comics Fantastic Four. And while I'm not a big fan of the cut of Droxine's outfit, the material looks really fabulous. In good science fiction fashion, putting the privileged class up in the clouds and the lower classes underground does Metropolis one better and really creates a divide. The troglites are kept down by the very substance they are made to mine, giving more reason for the Stratos dwellers to keep them there, so it's not entirely black and white. Kirk is back in his prime in this one, going right after Placis as one of those bureaucrats he can't stand, shades of Nils Barris. His final solution is a good one and well played by all involved. Vanna comes off as a credible rebel leader and the Stratos dwellers are real hypocrites. Spock creates a few problems for me in the Cloudminders, though. One of which is our hearing his inner voice early in the episode, explaining the issues, etc. This is the first time I've felt the creators were talking down to me in the entire run of the series. Some messages have been hammered home pretty stiffly, but this interior monologue seems totally unnecessary and redundant. And then there's his relationship with Droxine, a subplot that nearly ruins the entire episode for me. Much like Kirk in Requiem for Methuselah, Spock in Love at First Sight, is a little hard to swallow. While an intellectual attraction is certainly possible there, I can't believe he would spill the beans about the super-private concept of Ponfar. The romance between the two is almost creepy, and often sounds like it wanted to cater to all of Spock's female fans. It's less graphic, but no less torrid than most fanfiction on the subject. Perhaps part of the problem is that Droxine is so boring and obvious a character. On the one hand, it makes her seem more alien and aristocratic, but on the other, it makes it that much harder to believe Spock would show an interest. I shall go to the mines. I no longer wish to be limited to the clouds. I certainly don't believe she'll really take up mining. A Siskoid special edition cut would leave her almost entirely on the cutting room floor. Still, I said this at medium. Despite the Spock-Droxine fiasco, the Cloudminders has some good ideas and plays on the great Star Trek themes of personal freedom and universal equality rather well. Next is the Savage Curtain a.k.a. Abraham Lincoln in space. Uh, has some nice things going for it, but the execution lets it down. Like, I like the Excalibians as this truly alien-looking life form, much more gestural than we might have expected. The test they set up between good and evil using historical figures pulled from the minds of the crew is reminiscent, some might even say derivative, of Spectre of the Gun and before that Arena. But unfortunately, instead of the great triumph experienced at the end of Arena, it's all a bit limp. I do appreciate that the Excalibian doesn't get it, I even really like that, but it's also, okay, goodbye, see you later, without so much as a warning buoy left behind, as in the cage, for example. So it seems so irrelevant. Matters aren't helped by the terrible fight scenes that make up this conflict. I thought I'd seen some bad ones over the course of the last three seasons, but nothing this bad. Spock, in particular, has a lot of trouble spending half his time with Zora on his back and totally unable to use his super strength or nerve pinch. Did they get left behind on the transporter pad with the phasers? The villains are rather wasted, with the two non-speaking roles being particularly dull and uninspiring. Kales is as treacherous as a Romulan. I guess it's the crew's idea of Kales not the Klingons, but not very engaging or exceptional in battle. Colonel Green has more of a voice, but the show is very humanocentric, even Americanocentric, in making him the leader. These serve to tantalize with brief details of Star Trek history, but not much more than that at this point. President Lincoln and Surak are much better, however. Lincoln is immediately charming, and we share in Kirk's admiration of him. Uh, the crew's reactions to him are fun for the most part, and the use of Uhura is interesting here. 
Surak is a more stoic character, incredibly strict about showing emotion. He agrees that Spock was emotional about seeing him, but it's not really visible to our eyes, for example. Surak read in your face what is in your mind, Spock. As I turned and my eyes beheld you, I displayed emotion. I beg forgiveness. The cause was more than sufficient. Let us speak no further of it. But even more than Lincoln, he's a great stand-in for Roddenberry's philosophies. Both characters get some good lines and get to sacrifice their lives for good reasons. I would be remiss if I didn't mention once again all the science fantasy magic that has now become the norm for the show. There's a lot of hand-waving here, even if you accept that the Excalibians can rearrange matter. For example, if they don't understand good and evil, or humanoid nature, how can they create such realistic simulations of historical figures that exemplify those traits? If they can reach into the minds of the crew, why can't they get their information there? How do they interfere so specifically with the transporters? It makes the all-important suspension of disbelief necessary for this kind of series all the more difficult. Still, medium rewatchability. If you want a complete picture of the history leading up to the Star Trek universe, this is a key episode. Enterprise fans in particular can compare it to later stories, but TNG has also mined from it. Unfortunately, the story is an uninspired retread of better alien test episodes. Next up, all our yesterdays. The idea of an entire planet's population escaping their star going nova through time travel is a really interesting one. And with the irreversible death of the planet, it's not like paradoxes will create much of a problem, as long as you don't prevent the invention of time travel. Or the Atavacron might prepare you in a way that makes history static, so you can't change it, rather than fluid, a la the Guardian on the edge of forever. So the premise itself is thought-provoking. But a premise is only that. Good thing, then, that Spock and McCoy's predicament generates a number of good scenes. The icy environment itself is well done and original for the series, and we find and we find out the Atavacron was once used for other purposes. Zarabeth has real presence and sweetness, even if her clothes seem impractical in her locale. Why do I always remember a fur bikini here? That's not what she wears. McCoy accuses her of many things at the end, but I think he was trying to goad Spock into realizing he changed. She wasn't really guilty, at least not consciously, of those things. Anyway, Marriott Hartley, good guest star. As for Spock's change, it asks some questions that were never explored after this on the nature of his mind link with other Vulcans. He suffered from psychic shock in the immunity syndrome when 400 Vulcans died in one go, and here the rampant emotions of the ancient Vulcans affect his behavior and he loses control. It makes for some memorable scenes. It makes for some memorable scenes, in particular when he attacks McCoy for calling him names. Now you listen to me, you pointed-eared Vulcan. I don't like that. I don't think I ever did, and now I'm sure. What's happening to you, Spock? Nothing that shouldn't have happened long ago. Wow, intense. It gives Spock a chance to really react before the series close. The romance here is way more believable than in the Cloudminders, as these two share a real loneliness. It's heartbreaking that we even have to leave Zarabeth behind. And Spock, at the very end, almost manages to hide his pain. Good stuff. Yes, it happened. But that was 5,000 years ago. And she's dead now. Dead and buried. Long ago. Meanwhile, uh, Kirk is stuck in a time period that combines foppish musketeers and witch trials, all too reminiscent of Earth in its clothing styles, parallel history again, but with outrageous period accents. Ugh. My eyes glaze over whenever we switch to Kirk. I understand his function in the story, but his part in it is pretty dull compared to Spock and McCoy's. Still, it does put a different spin on the Bones nickname, even, 
even if the witness never heard him say the word. We have more fun with his scenes in the library, though he's a bit rough with poor Mr. Atos, whose character is a real hoot, by the way. His trying to wheel an unconscious Kirk into the time portal still draws a chuckle from me after all these years. I give it a high. I was angling for medium, but there are enough cool ideas, guest stars, and scenes here to warrant higher rewatchability. Not perfect, but in a way, the original series' last classic episode. With more love for this one, I've reached out to Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology. This one is one of my favorite episodes because of just a, just a few reasons, but the main reason being, I would say, Marriott Hartley <laughs> as Zarabeth, who is just beautiful. And also that the Zarabeth storyline with Spock and McCoy trapped in the past, 5,000 years in the past of an alien planet um, and during the Ice Age, where Spock begins to revert to a much more primitive mental state and falls in love with a cave woman, and, or, or at least an exiled um, alien time traveler herself in this last age. And in the end, they, Spock and McCoy, escape this Ice Age doom to get home, but Spock has to leave behind this woman he falls in love with. In a nutshell, it's my favorite episode in that it is coming at the almost the very end of the Star Trek original series run is basically Spock's Edith Keeler. And um, it's got all the same time travel, a lost love, a doomed love, in fact. Um, one that would actually play out a little later in uh, one of the books, Yesterday's Son. But uh, so that is all our yesterdays. And it all ends with episode 80, 79 originally, but 80 once you count the cage. Turnabout Intruder. Whew. Though Turnabout Intruder is often attacked for being outrageously sexist in its statement that women can't be starship captains, I'm among those who prefer to read Janice Lester's words another way. What she actually tells Kirk is that, I'm paraphrasing here, there was no room for women in his world of starship captains. Seeing as she was bitter, their relationship ended because he took off to the stars. I don't read that at all as if women couldn't accede to the position. Because anyways, two captains couldn't have been together on the same ship but rather that his position doesn't really allow him to carry on a serious relationship with a woman. All that doesn't dispel the fact that Lester is a madwoman who hates her own gender and is both hysterical, so to speak, and psychotic. If the episode is sexist, it's because it paints a really unflattering picture of a woman. If I seem to be making excuses for the episode, it's because this controversial element is more or less a non-issue for me. Because there are so many more reasons to dislike Turnabout Intruder. Like, to me, the third season ends like it started. Spock's brain, an episode in a key schedule slot, turned a main character into a zombie, torpedoing the episode from the get-go. We tune in for these guys, show them at their best. Turnabout Intruder might have been less of a turkey if it had occurred mid-season, but as a series finale, it's a disaster. This time, it's Kirk that's not himself. Not the farewell I would have liked for the captain of the Enterprise. The whole mind-swapping plot is on autopilot anyway, with Kirk totally unable to come up with something not on the record to convince his officers he's the real deal. And security backing the faux captain even after an execution has been ordered like they were extras from the Mirror Universe. And what of McCoy's totally useless psych test? Overall, a pretty silly dilemma. And yet, I do give props to the actors. William Shatner gives his performance a jaunty feminine quality and also sells Lester's pettiness and relish in the trappings of power. The descent into madness gets way over the top, but at least delivers some campiness. Silence! You will be silent! As for Sandra Smith, she never manages Kirk's accent, 
but she does have some of his delivery and mannerisms. Kirk's strengths and confidence show through. The other characters get some good scenes too, in particular, Scotty's incitement to mutiny. Headquarters has its problems, and we have ours. And right now, the captain of the Enterprise is our problem. An oddity for a finale episode is Nurse Chapel's new brunette look. Looks like she knew they were on their way off the air and decided to change her hair for another job. Jarring. And to be fair, does Janice Lester seem at all Kirk's type? Well, I guess he, ha he probably has no type. So a low rewatchability rating. The series ends not with a bang, but with a whine. No, I don't, I don't think it's as bad as its reputation makes it out to be, mostly thanks to the acting. They missed the boat on ending the series with dignity. So it's a good thing it wasn't really the end. Looking back at the third season in its entirety, it's got some good episodes. It's mostly even Steven, uh, but there are some real bad ones. And the change of focus does hurt it. We've gone from a science fiction show that showed the good that science could do and inspired so many scientists and astronauts. And we've gone into the realm of fantasy because Star Trek has always done morality plays and, and sci-fi fables But here the writers go too far into fable land, and we're left with symbolism. That's hard to reconcile with the explainable universe. Okay, well, that took a long time, didn't it? I sure didn't think it would take this long. My bad. Hope you're still awake, that maybe you took it in chunks. And guess what? It's still not over. We'll take a small break, and when we come back, we'll do subspace transmissions, including your feedback from the previous episode. In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men, monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars. Dr. G's Secret Wars promo should have been dropped between the Savage Curtain and his review of all our yesterdays, but what you gonna do? Now for some short subspace transmissions. Since we last spoke, here's what we found out about Star Trek Discovery. First, uh, they've cast Harry Potter's Jason Isaacs as Captain Lorica, a major role, even if the show doesn't focus on the captain. Uh, Mary Wiseman has been cast as Cadet Tilly. So with two different Starfleet ships captains and Klingons and cadets and just what is this show uh, they've also got rain wilson to play a young harry mudd and i've already said a couple times on this show that you know how little i like that character and that's as played by the iconic roger carmel 
so they better get up early in the morning to make me warm up to the new iteration. And in anti-casting news, Michael Dorn will not be playing Worf's ancestor on the show. Seems there was something to that rumor, but it's just not going to happen at this time. In book news, Star Trek Sex is available on Amazon, in which writer Will Stape analyzes the most sexually charged episodes of the original series, and Titan Books has announced it's releasing the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard, a sequel to the James T. Kirk one, uh, by David Goodman in October. And now for your listener feedback on the episode about Star Trek weddings. Uh, Chris Franklin from Nightcast says, I think I could go for a Klingon wedding. The chance to beat my in-laws and relatives with a non-lethal object sounds like a fun time. Oh, and at our wedding, Cindy and I, the other supermate, Cindy and I did the unity candle thing. Thank God no one was naked. I will give Bass some major points for making me look at Troy's mother in a different light. Like most, my eyes roll every time she pops up, but I kind of get her a bit better now. Where were you 25 years ago, Bass? Uh, Brian Linton also found Bass's take on Luxana very interesting. Uh, he also says, uh, I'd always imagine that her over-the-top behavior was somewhat calculated on her part, a tool she uses as an ambassador to throw off the competition. That being said, it makes perfect sense that in a culture where you can't keep secrets, you may as well just come out and say what you believe. I have to say that I most like the Betazoid wedding ceremony for its openness and honesty, but I'd never have the courage to go through with such a ceremony, let alone even attend one. In regards to wedding ceremonies in Western culture, I think that tradition certainly plays a role, but I believe there is another force behind the spectacle, that is the modern Western wedding. That would be the multi-million dollar wedding industry that sells us the image of the perfect wedding, which all of us deserve and need to have, no matter the cost. I think that goes a long way to explaining the superficiality that can, to varying degrees, creep into modern weddings. Of course, the whole industry is probably controlled by time-traveling Ferengi trying to destabilize human culture in an attempt to prevent the formation of the Federation. Davides Gutierrez says Jadzia in her medieval Klingon getup is always something to behold, but I've always loved that character. Uh, more shows, please. This month-long wait is a killer. What if I die before we get to the Sulu is a badass episode? I sure hope you don't, because you're the you're the guest star on that. Uh, Rob Kelly says, I like how this show is tackling Trek from different angles, a nice way to differentiate itself from all other Trek casts out there. Thanks, that's the point, Rob. Uh, he also says, I would it would be interesting to consider what marriage as a concept even looks like by the 23rd or 24th century, when there are now non-humans regularly interacting and falling in love with humans. Considering how ugly the fight for marriage equality was and is, I can't imagine what the first human-alien couple went through in terms of societal acceptance. We do see some of that uh, in at the very end of Enterprise, Rob. Um, Paul in KC corrects me on, I sort of, I, I said the American Revolution happened because of the French Revolution, uh, but obviously it's the opposite. I misspoke uh, and reversed it, couldn't fix it in editing. Uh, thanks to Paul. And Mark Baker writes, as the word you guys were looking for when trying to describe the person that fills the minister's role in a non-religious wedding is efficient, which is technically what you'd call a minister in a wedding anyway. So all ministers are efficients. All efficients are not ministers. That's the point. Finally, some Facebook likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Clinton Robson of Coffee and Comics, Chuck Rodriguez, David S. Gutierrez, Give Me Those Star Wars, Gord Tolton, H. Daniel Rebolt, Jared West, Jason Pope, Mark Lax, Nicholas Brom, Rob Kelly, Sean Emmons, Shag Matthews, who says, Here comes the bride, all dressed in nothing? What? Those Betazoids. 
Of course, he'd fixate on that. Terence Castonguay, uh, and uh, Google Plus from Finktree, Twitter retweets and favorites from Bas Levesque, Bet Bloom, Chuck Rodriguez, Comic Reflections, Dr. G Nerdologist, Film and Water Podcast, Kaz, Cax, Earl, okay, Mike Gillis, Pod Dylan, Rich Grimmel, Rollspine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Treasury Comics, and Trekonomics Trekbot. As usual, we welcome our robot overlords. And let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 